My name is Chris White and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast where we're going back in the time machine to November of the year 2000 to bring you all your WWF coverage including a full review of the Survivor Series pay-per-view. Joining me this month we have Rory McNamara. Rory, how are we doing? Doing very well. Evening all. And rounding off the month we have Dan Welling. Dan, good to have you back on. Cheers guys. It's the third year in a row we are, all three of us are sitting series uh surely you can't be any more dramatic than the last two days last can it really sure right right i, I mean it can't be better than 98 it can't be worse than 99 right it's got to be in the middle <laughs> well yeah i'll, I'll, I'll take it in the middle because i wasn't actually on the show for 98 Ooh. eric eric was the third man for oh god damn it i made that whole intro and it's actually wrong <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Dan, could you uh, please uh, redeem yourself after that intro <laughs> and lead Rory through the news headlines for the month? Uh, here, here we go then. Let's hopefully I don't screw up this time. Uh, pretty tenuous claims. People always skip the intros, Dan, don't worry. Pretty tenuous claims indeed. Yes, Vince McMahon and the WWF have filed a lawsuit against the PTC for spreading false information about the departing advertisers. The exact phrase in the suit itself, crafted in perfect WWF ease, is a pattern of unlawful threats, intimidation, coercion, deception, and flat-out lies. Vince told the New York Post, we are going to aggressively go after the organization run by this Brent Bozzle character. Uh, PTC should really pull him up about spitting infinitives, but never mind. McMahon states that the PTC are presenting a list of advertisers who have abandoned their sponsorship of a WWF, which to me seems like a tertiary complaint at best, but there you go. Always the victim, mom and pop promotion, all that. The Fed also had the temerity to have a pop at Bozell's supposed right-wing leanings, and rather brilliantly, he is against television reference to sex, humour about sex, sexual innuendo, sexual banter, and most of all, anything that implies that people do in fact have or enjoy sex. Sex. Here is Brent Bozzle's response. I guess, I guess for w- sex. I guess for WWFE have learned the hard way just how painful it is to be smacked down by responsible corporate advertisers. As the chairman of the PTC, I claim full responsibility for an educational campaign that tells the truth about SmackDown's raw sexual content and violent programming marketed directly to the children of our nation. Vince and Linda McMahon can malign the PTC and me personally all they want. They can make all the legal threats against our organization they wish. And their supporters can continue their death threats against us. But the PTC will continue its campaign to convince corporate America 
but it has a national responsibility to turn away from such violent and sexually explicit programming aimed at children. The fact that yesterday we convinced Chef Boyardee and Slim Jim to pull their ad dollars from SmackDown shows we are not going to let the McMahons intimidate us with threats. Despite their seeming hubris, the WWF remain very concerned about their public image and perception. As a result, there has been a marked toning down of much of the product in recent weeks. Naked Midian is nowhere to be seen. Phew. And of course, Billy Gunn is now the one and no longer Mr. Ass. The lawsuit continues. Don't do it, Austin. No, really, don't do it, Austin. Please don't do it, Austin. Please don't do what you're about to do at the Ice Palace in Tampa, Florida on November the 19th, 2000. Oh, you did, because Stephanie McMahon is in creative control now. That is why the end of Survivor Series, very nearly was the end of Survivor Series and the end of my WWF viewing for good, quite frankly, when the long-awaited match between Steve Austin and the mastermind behind the hit and run last year, Triple H, ended when Austin dropped a car with Triple H in it from a very great height in the car park outside. There you go. It sounds ridiculous. And that's because everybody, it was. We will tell you just how much, or as much as we can do, a bit later on. Otherwise, there were Survivor Series matches. Eh. Kurt Angle successfully defended the WWF title against The Undertaker. Huh. And The Rock defeated Rikishi. Remember him? Owen Hart family lawsuit settled. This month, Owen Hart's widow Martha reached an out-of-court settlement with the WWF, as filed at the Missouri Court of Appeals. The amount of the settlement itself is rumoured to be in the range of $18 million, which is to be divided amongst the members of the family. A joint statement for lawyers for both sides reads, The parties have come to an amicable agreement, satisfactory to both parties, and the WWF will now continue the case against the entities which manufactured and sold the stunt equipment involved. The latter clause refers to the Fed's intention to sue the manufacturers of the equipment used at the time of the accident in order to recoup some of the money of this payout. All very grim indeed. In an interview this month, Bret Hart recounted a story where he actually met with Vince McMahon a few days after the tragedy. And I quote, He wanted to meet me and I said I'd meet him in a park where I used to ride my bike and you can tell me whatever it is you want to tell me. One of the things I was coached on by lawyers is that whatever you do, don't talk about the case. He didn't want to meet me in the park. He wanted to meet me in the hotel. I found out after he had police stationed all around the park. I guess he was worried I was going to kill him or something. It was in that meeting that he promised me access to all of my archival footage. He promised me access to my photos and everything, my whole career, which is all locked away. I haven't got one picture or very few pictures of my entire career. He also promised me a job. He begged, pleaded with me. It was the biggest regret he ever made. He was sorry for everything he did, that I had to finish my career by coming back to work for him. I listened to all of this stuff coming out of this guy's mouth, and I remember sitting there thinking, here is your apology you've been waiting two years to hear. I kept wanting to find some sense that he meant it. I wondered if there was any sincerity. I thought maybe I should accept it, that it was maybe a legitimate apology. Four days later, the conversation about my archival footage and all that, his lawyer said Vince McMahon does not recall that conversation taking place. End quote. Say no more. I'm not said that hang on the F before. XFL kicks off soon. Feels like we've been waiting for a very long time because, well, we have. But the WWF are now officially advertising a start date for the XFL. 
February the 3rd, 2001 will be the opening game, just the week after the Super Bowl. Just a coincidence that. One of the analysts for that match will be none other than Jesse Ventura in the latest chapter of his on and off saga with VKM. He should be safe from having to ask if it is okay to shoot another player as long as it is off the field, as McMahon is still pushing the legitimacy of the action we will be seeing. What else can I do but finish with another quote? In an interview with the PW Torch, Vince said this, What you can expect is a microphone and a camera wherever you want action and reaction. The NFL has never given you that before. You've never had that all-access pass. Oh, God, who gave him that line? You've never been allowed to listen in and look in on half-time when coaches are trying to get their players off their asses. Or that one. That's extremely interesting to me in football. Choke back the laughter. I want to know what the quarterback says after he's sacked. What the quarterback says to the tackle who lets somebody through. I'm going to be there for that. The audience is going to be there for that. So we don't need to go anywhere else. And in a line that Vince could only have given himself, by the way, our cheerleaders will actually speak. Thank you very much, Rory. Uh, Dan, um, any particular uh, story there from the news that you'd like to discuss in any greater detail? I know, obviously, we'll break down Survivor Series in a short while, but uh, for maybe from the other three, what stands out to you? Uh, I'm, I'm kind of not going to touch on the, the news, but more of a general point, which links to the news, is that we're hearing here about, you know, the, the PTC lawsuit, Vince trying to, you know, um, settle the family lawsuit with Owen Hart and also the um, XFL. These are all three massively big projects that take up a lot of the chairman's time and energy. And does anybody else think this may be a reason why WWF's TV this month has had a significantly downgrade this month? Because I just, yeah, it just felt to me like Vince in particular, maybe the creative in general, um, with the new regime change, maybe thinking too much about for, you know other big projects that are taking up their time and maybe not necessarily focusing so much on the in-ring action, whether all of the praise we've given the company over the last 11 months or so with their logical booking and their consistently excellent storylines and, and, and creative thinking, to me, just seemed to have fallen away this month. Um, and that may be carried in the pay-per-view, I'm not sure, but... To me, it did feel like this is starting to take away from the actual in-ring product itself. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, Rory, we've spoken on the show before about Chris Kresge and you've sung his praises. And obviously, he's no longer the man sort of like writing this TV. And as mentioned, Stephanie McMahon is in creative control of the show. Um, do we know sort of like outside of the fact that her surname is McMahon like where where did this come from like I think you've answered your own question there I've not been able to glean any suggestion in the past that Stephanie McMahon in all fairness to her necessarily wanted this particular gig rather suspect it was foisted upon her handed down from father to daughter and all that missing out somebody else in the lineage Draw your own conclusions to that one. But yes, and Stephanie, to me, is booking like somebody who doesn't really want this job either. Whether it's just a stopgap for the getting in somebody else who knows how to storyboard or write half-decent television, I don't know. I certainly hope so. But there's been a marked downgrading in the quality this month. I've, I've seen all the Raw and Smackdowns this month. I think Dan is quite correct. A lot of matches which despite being contested between 
big names and main eventing Raws and SmackDown, and matches themselves, which have still been fairly decent, they haven't really necessarily gone anywhere. A lot of the storytelling, certainly in the two weeks after the pay-per-view, definitely been getting bogged down. A very unsatisfactory conclusion to one of the monthly storylines, which we'll talk about a bit later on. And it just seems to me as though Stephanie is learning on the job. They've got a lot of goodwill behind them with their viewers and the fact that the competition not even in the rearview mirror of the rearview mirror. So there's nothing to worry about there. They're not going to be caught anytime soon. If ever there was a time to experiment on air, then I suppose this is it. But it's not the most auspicious of starts. We're not going to be looking back on November 2000 TV in the same way we look back on July 2000 TV or even August for that matter. I, I think I probably enjoyed the month slightly more than, than both of you, um, having watched all of the TV. But, I mean, I completely agree that there's been a, a notable drop-off in quality, especially compared to those two months you mentioned, Rory. I think the biggest shift for me feels like this sort of... If you go back to the summer months of this year, a lot of the WWF storytelling felt very long-term and, and this feels almost more week to week and Mm -hmm. kind of like where we end up on the last SmackDown of the month and the announcement of the main event for the pay-per-view in December is kind of just like, I I don't believe for a second that going into November, that was the plan, if you know what I mean. And and then by the end of the month, it's kind of like, Oh shit. Um, we've we've booked about five different matches like um and we've got all these storylines and they've just kind of merged and they just have to book themselves out of situations rather than plotting their way through storylines um as they did so well in the summer and i mean the marks sort of thing that really stood out to me is like the angle and stephanie partnership like last month he wins the wwf title and then you get like two weeks into this month and that's just over. Like it's just gone. Don't really mention it anymore. Just and then like like a couple of weeks later, Kurt says to Foley, like in a backstage segment and Raw, just like, Oh yeah, Stephanie's not been around with me anymore. Like it, it just <laughs> it's just like that was like that went on for like four months. And it's just been binned off in a week or two. Uh for no real good reason. And I I, I think this sort of short term is termism has really hurt the quality of the TV this month. But I do think it's had um, its moments, certainly uh, newsworthy moments, as we'll get into oh, yes. uh, now. Um, yeah, so kicking off our discussion about WWF TV for the month and uh, a quick mention of a Vince McMahon promo on the first war of the month on the 6th of November. And uh, we kicked off that show with uh, Vince on the mic. Um, he wonders that as it's election day tomorrow, who will Stone Cold be voting for? Who will The Rock be voting for? Who will Al Snow be voting for? (laughs) Vince stresses that what really matters is who the fans are going to vote for because he knows they're wondering why they should care and that the fans have become disenfranchised from the political process as political pundits don't care about them because they assume they don't vote. Vince suggests that maybe the fans don't have a reason to vote tomorrow, so he decides to give them a reason. He claims that the candidates have their committed voters already lined up, but those groups will cancel each other out, and as a result, it will be the WWF fans who truly elect the next president. So they need them. Vince admits the fans may look like either candidate and may have to choose the lesser of two evils, 
but continues to plead with the fans to go out and vote. At this point, we get the glass shattering and out comes Austin. He says he's not here to talk about politics. He's here to open a big fat can of whoop ass and we move on with the show. Rory, um, a strange way to kick off TV for the month and uh, just something that's never really mentioned again. I wonder why. So we talked about this in July when they first dropped the Smackdown the vote thing. And we all, all three of us were on that show and we all thought, hmm, they're dabbling in presidential politics now after the results of the last two elections. Purely, again, purely coincidental, I am sure. And now here we are on the eve of an election where the polls, and I've checked them, the day before the election were indeed neck and neck, completely close to call in both the popular vote and the Electoral College. And then suddenly Vince McMahon is out here telling us that our vote is going to count as if he has some sort of vested interest or something. Like I said in July, pro wrestling fans, there's a huge stigma around them. I mean, Jim Cornette has said in the past that for many years, there are a lot of pro wrestlers who wanted to write books and they were dissuaded from doing so because publishers thought that pro wrestling fans couldn't read. So going into a a polling booth and putting an X against the candidate's name. Oh, heaven forfend. But so anything that can remove the shackles, but that's what they are of so many people of voter apathy is only a good thing. But it's impossible to say that how to assess and say that the intentions are pure here because we know we know where they're coming from. There was a match with the right to censor on that edition of Raw where Jerry Lawler, and it wasn't the king, it was Jerry Lawler, said, well, I'm not going to vote for the Gore-Lieberman ticket tomorrow because they really are the right to censor. JR did his best to cut across and say that his opinions are not necessarily those of the WWF, (coughs) even though they are. But um, they just couldn't help themselves. And again, I get it. I understand that Vince it's probably in his interests especially with ratings being so high and being so popular around the world that they're not just a bunch of knuckle dragon automatons that pro wrestling fans hey we do have a brain and we think about stuff and we care about things that's important and that is laudable but I'm going to say now what I said four months ago I think deep down we all know really why yeah Dan what did you uh, make of this promo from Vince I honestly don't care. It's an American <laughs> election. Why do I care? <laughs> Go and vote. Go well, and I suppose vote, in fairness America. to Dan, um, a couple of weeks after this, uh, Steve Regal got involved with American affairs and ended up tapping out to the Rock's sharpshooter. You know, the ultimate ignominy. So maybe Dan's right to take the fifth on this one. Oh, there I go again. <laughs> <laughs> so... To actual uh, wrestling storyline then, and uh, the biggest storyline on WWF TV in November heading into Survivor Series concerned the mastermind behind Rikishi running over Stone Cold Steve Austin at Survivor Series last year. Rikishi had started the month by pointing the finger firmly at The Rock, saying he was lying during his initial confession when he'd previously said that The Rock knew nothing about the incident with Austin. Rikishi claimed The Rock not only knew about it all along, but gave him his car keys and begged him to take Stone Cold out as the mastermind behind the whole plan. Although the first SmackDown of the month ended with Rocky laying Austin out with a rock bottom, we went into Raw with Austin none the wiser as to who had been truly involved with running him down last year. 
Initially, Austin accused Vince, which led to a brawl between Angle and Austin at the start of the show, with Austin laying out the champion with a stunner. The main event of Raw was scheduled to be Austin and The Rock teaming up against Kurt Angle and Rikishi, but Rocky was taken out backstage just before the match by an unknown assailant, leaving Austin in a two-on-one situation. Towards the latter stages of that match, Angle and Rikishi beating down Austin together, and you can tell we're waiting for a run-in, and sure enough, out comes Triple H. Triple H goes right after Angle, and Austin fights back against Rikishi, until Triple H nails Stone Cold Steve Austin in the head with a sledgehammer. Austin's busted open. Hunter and Rikishi work together to beat Austin down. Hunter grabs a mic, gets in Austin's face, tells him that his search is over, and he now knows. That week on SmackDown, we open with a promo from Triple H explaining all. Hunter asks the jeering fans if he makes them sick when they respond with boos. Triple H says the feeling's mutual, and he got sicker and sicker every time they cheered him. Triple H addresses the Stone Cold hit and run by asking who could get into a car and run that man down, and answers his question by bringing out the man who danced his way to the bank, Rikishi. Rikishi joins Triple H in the ring, gets on the mic, proudly saying that he did it, he liked it, and he got his big break by pressing the gas pedal and running Austin down. Rikishi admits that The Rock was just an excuse and he doesn't care about him. He says The Rock is just a joke who could never really be part of his family in the way that Triple H is. Triple H claims the fans are upset because nobody saw that he could come up with such an elaborate plan. Triple H then says... He was the one who gained the most from Austin's absence. Since he held the WWF title longer than anyone else, he married the boss's daughter and he practically ran the WWF. The segment comes to an end with Foley announcing Rikishi versus Rock and Hunter versus Austin for Survivor Series. So, Dan, the reveal is finally here. It was Hunter behind the plan all along. Yeah, it made sense for one thing, which is more than Rikishi got last month, so I'll give them lot more credit i guess is the word for saying that even though they botched the initial reveal it makes it's a more of a dream match you know i know they had a match last year but triple h has gone to another level as we all know this year so having your top heel versus steve austin is much more of a draw when if you don't have faith in your champ for whatever reason and you know the rock needs us you know never partner and austin needs a big match then triple h just feels like more of the the logical decision to make and when you know the promo lays out all the reasons why it makes sense for him to be it does again make a logical decision and if this hadn't have been bungled so badly last month with rikishi trying to be the lone car driver it probably would have been more of a satisfying payoff um because, yeah, I know he has been getting cheers for like the last two months in particular. But to me, with The Rock and Austin, you don't need another big, massive face. You, you need to have a big heel. And as we know throughout the whole year, Triple H is a fantastic heel. So partner him up with Angle, make them be the top two heels on the, in the company. And I think you've got the, the best alignment you could get. So, yeah, I didn't have much of a problem with the logical explanations of it. I didn't have a problem with Triple H being the, the mastermind because it makes sense and he is the best top heel in the company to have a feud with in. The, again, as I said, the problem is is that they tried to make it out like it was a lone drive all the time and, and 
that story didn't make sense. Um, and I was just like, the reveal itself with the sledgehammer attack, I could see it coming a mile away. As soon as he comes out, I knew that was that was what they were going down the route for. Um, yeah, it's just a shame that it's, it's maybe Kresge doing things. Or maybe, again, this is one of those instances where we have a bad reputation of Stephanie's already, and we immediately line this with her, and Kresge wanted it to be Rikishi, and he, you know, again, this, this, this is all Rikishi's fault, basically. If it was all Triple H, it would have been all fine. Yeah, I, 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 I honestly think that maybe the plan could have been to have Rikishi... Well, Rikishi was a very late choice for the for the the uh, driver. So they made the decision quite late in the day. It was Rikishi. You didn't have like a long-term plan or an idea of who it would be in place. Um, and then I feel like immediately you're like, okay, well, it's not going to work with Rikishi in that role. We're going to pivot to Triple H. But I mean... There's there's a way you do that to build up a WrestleMania match, isn't there? Like we're not that far away from WrestleMania or something like that. But then again, WWF TV feels so sort of car crash with Austin on it running rough up every week that I don't know how you drug that out to Mania. But I feel like if Rikishi was a better fit for the role, then there's a way you do that. Rory, what did you make of it all? Two things. One, car crash TV, excellently done there, Mr. White. I know full well you intended to say that. And uh, number two, what was it uh, Triple H said? He practically ran the WWF. Practically doing a lot of heavy lifting there, isn't it? But yes, this was eventually the right outcome. And whoever it was, even if it was the blessed Kresge, Rikishi was just overthinking things. It didn't need to happen. He was fine where he was. And he's making an effort with his heel promos and he's got his shell suit on and he's got his little sunglasses. But it's not happening. People aren't buying it. We'll see a prime example of that when we get to the pay-per-view. So I'm going to give them credit for correcting the course pretty early on. It should never have happened in the first place, but I think they realised that it just wasn't working. And it did have to be Triple H. And yes, because everything has to be dragged out these days, we had to have another mystery assailant. Who's hitting Austin in the head with a rubber spanner? Who's trying (laughs) to drop a crate on his head? Wiley Coyote would have dismissed some of these efforts as too cartoonish, but never mind. Stephanie, as I say, she's learning on the job. We're working our way up. We're about 1990 with her writing at the moment. We hop back a year and we head forward a few years at the pay-per-view, which I'll talk about, but I'll give her a chance. And Dan's quite right to say, as soon as Triple H comes out to save the day, We've been watching this stuff long enough to know now there's only one outcome, but it was fine. I especially liked the sit-down promo, which took place supposedly in WWF Studios, where Triple H laid out the whole thing from start to finish with video clips. I think everybody involved there did the best job they possibly could at piecing it together. And where there were one or two plot holes, and there were, they did their best to cover them. Any turn, even if it's somebody who should just be a heel anyway and has, wasn't really a face for the last two months, quasi-face at best, any heel turn is only as good as its explanation. And they really did try to cover it. And I just wish when they've had a year to come up with this, that they had, they just fucking make it Triple H. You know, 
and uh, tie themselves in not over a year ago by saying, oh, the person who ran him down had blonde hair, but nobody's going to fucking remember that. Like, I'm a stickler for attention to detail, as most listeners will say, but I would gladly have let that one slide. I'm not a complete fundamentalist, despite what some of you might think. <laughs> but yes, we got there in the end, but uh, it was far more painful than it needed to be. Yeah, Triple H in a wig would have done the job. I mean... <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I think the... Uh real issue is just it's a sort of culmination of that sort of like short-term storytelling again isn't it like if you'd have had a plan in place for it to have been hunter all along as a mastermind (laughs) with maybe a mid-card hill behind the wheel of the car there's a way to tell that story so much better than they actually did um and that being said hunter versus Austin is a huge match and uh, that being at uh, Survivor Series was genuinely something regardless of the quality of, of the TV as that was as much as I've looked forward to a match in the WWF pretty much all year um, and I really expected good things from it. Um, I expect we're going to have some opinions on that uh, when we get to Survivor Series which is at, well which is right about now. Um <laughs> Would uh, one of you, uh, whoever has them up to I hand... I have them right here. Thank you very much, Rory. Would you kindly take us through those results? Yep. So, Survivor Series 2000. In our opening match, Steve Blackman, Crash Holly and Molly Holly defeated the team of TNA and Trish Stratus. In a traditional Survivor Series match, as we must call them, the Radicals defeated Billy Gunn, China, Kay Quick, another newcomer, and Road Dog. Kane beat Chris Jericho in a singles match. William Regal beat Hardcore Holly by disqualification in a match for the European title. The Rock did indeed defeat Rikishi. Ivory beat Lita to retain the Women's Championship. Kurt Angle retained the WWF title over The Undertaker. In another traditional Survivor Series match, the Dudley Boys and the Hardys defeated Edge and Christian and Right to Censor, represented by Bob Buchanan and The Godfather. And in our main event, Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Triple H ended in a no contest. Oh, did it ever. Dan, what did you think of this show? Mm, I don't know. Like, I thought majority of the pay-per-views this, this year for the WWF have been very good. There's been a couple that have been downright trash, like WrestleMania and King of the Ring. Uh, I thought this show was the first time was just sort of... Eh. You know, it's fine. I didn't. I I probably would have been satisfied with my money if I paid for it, which is always like the like the criteria I judge on if a show is good. Um, but post that, I won't spoil things too much until we get to it. But a certain thing happens at the end of the show, and then eight days later, it's it's made almost redundant, which kind of makes me want to downgrade the show just on principle. Roy, what did you make of Survivor Series? Yeah, as long-term listeners will know, I find it hard to get up, so to speak, for Survivor Series events. Easily my least favourite of the big four because Survivor Series hasn't really mattered as a concept since 1990, but here we are. A very bitty show, I thought, on what has been a rather ropey year for the Federation for their grade a pay-per-views i mean the b shows have been stellar and oftentimes more than that their a shows up and down this was leaning down like had a few moments of clarity a couple of real pluses that i'm looking forward to talking about but you just can't get over the ending can you you just can't 
So Survivor Series kicks off with a video package featuring Triple H boasting about being the puppet master who orchestrated the hit and run on Stone Cold Steve Austin back at Survivor Series 1999. Um, And how tonight it would all be game over when the two went head to head. Wasn't it just? We open with an intergender tag match between Steve Blackman, Crash Holly and Molly Holly taking on Test, Albert and Trish. Blackman and Albert start out. Blackman lands some kicks, sweeps Albert's legs from under him. He tags Crash, who goes for a crossbody, but gets caught, so Blackman hits a missile drop kick to knock Crash onto onto Albert. Albert tags in Trish to get Crash, but Crash uh, leaps a low blow attempt, and Trish hits Albert. Crash flips over the ropes from the apron, hits a hurricane runner on test in a very nice spot. Uh, test hits Crash with a big boot, and TNA beat him down for a bit. Crash dives, drives into. Crash drives Test into Alberts on the apron, and Trish tags in. Crash tags in Molly, who goes after Trish, but Test slams her by her hair from the apron. Molly tries to get a tag, but Teddy Long doesn't see it. TNA then grab Molly as Trish lays in the kicks. Blackman and Crash eventually brawl outside with TNA, while Trish chokes Molly. Uh, from the top rope and hits an ugly looking bulldog off the top for two. Molly comes back with a sunset flip off the top, which gets the free count and the win for her team after just five minutes. Dan, what did you make of our opener? Um, again, relaying back to July 2000, which is what we're doing quite a bit of in this show, by the looks of it. Uh, I thought they were trying to do like a version two of Holly's and Blackman versus TNA, which was the Hardy Boys versus TNA in July. Um, which was an absolutely amazing opening match and trying to do the same thing here. Unfortunately, the Hollies aren't as over as the Hardy Boys. Molly Holly isn't as over a character as Lita, even though she's probably a better wrestler. And Steve Blackman isn't swinging kendo sticks and nunchucks around, which he's brilliant at, but he's, when he's in the ring, he's pretty boring. So I wasn't nearly as invested into this match as I was a few months ago. Um, and the action to me, wasn't as exciting as that match was either. Um, it was still okay, don't get me wrong. Um, but, yeah, there's not an, as much good stuff as I was you know, looking to see from an opening match that, you know, given what we've seen in the past, can be done with, with, with TNA as like a good pivot point for the babyface, you know, underdog tag team. Um, but looking forward to seeing more of Molly in the ring. She looks to be a, a real good addition to the women's division. Uh, and yeah, it was that, that was the showcase for her. And what we later saw in some of the TV, it was pretty good establishing point. Rory, over to you. Yeah, Dan's right. This was definitely a showcase for Molly. But it was also a bit of a showcase for Trish as well, I thought. I just wonder the amount of times we've seen her in the ring shortly before this show and shortly after it whether they are going to try to pivot her away from TNA at some point in the future and actually have her going forward as a bona fide wrestler. Bona fide is <laughs> quite a friendly term at this point because she's nowhere near ready for that. But other than that rather memorable bulldog you mentioned there, Chris, the memories came flooding back after you mentioned that, I think she acquitted herself decently enough in there i don't think you needed an especially trained eye to see that molly who is a fine worker was leading trish through those sequences but i wouldn't go as far to say trish was outright being carried either when she needed to hold up her end she did so in as much as she can at this point certainly as much as she needed the fact that a 
couple of shows after this, I think it was on SmackDown the same week, Molly and Trish had a straight-up singles match that was kind of okay as well. So the signs for Trish might be good. They probably didn't want to go all the way with Molly v. Trish on pay-per-view, hence the other warm bodies and not much more being in there at this point. But promising for Trish. Probably come back to me in three or four months on that one, but promising. But as just to finish on Molly, excellent pickup, I think. She can work with anybody as much as the women's roster is worth anything at this point. Proved her worth in her Mona Miss Madness days, and especially a recommendation for you when she was known as Starla Saxton, mainly milling around the likes of Pro and Worldwide, late 98, early 99. Some fine work there while digging out. So, yes, just a showcase. Not one to write home about now, and it probably wouldn't be in February, March, just thinking about it out loud. Next July, August, perhaps. But what they do with Trish now, I think, is the really interesting thing. Yeah, I agree with pretty much everything you've both said. Nothing much to add for for me. Um, what I will say is uh, Bulldog, um, I know I highlighted it there. It's looking maybe a bit messy, but um, WWF uh, pay-per-views and women's matches are going to have uh, a lot of goodwill for me as long as they're in the ring wrestling and less sort of like evening gown, mug bath, mate young type things that we've seen um, all too often the last couple of years. So when we've kind of got this scenario going on, um, it's going to um, immediately kind of be in my good books from the off, having them in there wrestling, giving them a chance. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a positive in itself and uh, less of the other stuff. So this was uh, just fine as an opener. Backstage, Edge and Christian see Kurt Angle. They think that he's going to ask to help with his match against The Undertaker, so they begin making excuses. But Angle says that he owns The Undertaker, so it's no problem. Our next match is that traditional for Survivor Series elimination match with the Radicals taking on Billy Gunn, China, Road Dog, and K Quick, making his WWF pay-per-view debut here. Gunn and Saturn starts things off with Gunn taking control and then tagging in China. Gunn and China hit a double vertical suplex on Saturn. China nails a flapjack on Saturn, followed by a handspring elbow. Um, Shazian catches her, but she breaks free with a low blow and hits a DDT. The team's brawl in an the team's brawling out, and in the confusion, Eddie runs in the ring with the Intercontinental title, hits China in the back of it, allowing Saturn to eliminate China. Eddie works over Road Dog, but he gets the, eventually gets a hot tag to Billy Gunn after a superplex. Gunn clears out the radicals, hits the move he now calls the one on Eddie, and eliminates him. Kay Quick comes in, has a nice exchange with Milenko and Benoit, until Benoit hits a bridging German suplex to get the elimination. Road Dog's next in for his team, but he gets worked over by the Radicals. Saturn hits a Northern Light suplex and gets the pin. Gunn is the last man left for his team against the Three Hills. Malenko whips Billy into the corner. Benoit pulls the ropes down and sends Gunn out of the ring. Gunn avoids a super kick that sees Saturn accidentally kick Benoit back in the ring. Billy av- avoids another move, nails Malenko with a fame master and eliminates him. 2v1, Saturn and Benoit work him over. Get the advantage. Benoit hits a diving headbutt, but Gunn kicks out. Billy makes a comeback, driving Benoit into Saturn on the apron and then attempting a suplex. But Saturn pulls out his legs from under him, holds his legs on the apron. Benoit gets the cover, picks up the win for his team. Our survivors, Chris Benoit and Perry Saturn after 12 minutes. Rory, over to you. 
And that finish is what I mean by Steph drawing from 1989. More years are available. More on that later. Oh, so I get to talk about the first Survivor Series match first, do I? Oh, joy of joys. At least there are only two of them. Oh, it's just so difficult to pick any real action out of these things because they just exist. And how long was Kay Quick in there for? Just remind me. Was he the first person to go on the face team? No, he was like the third or fourth. Wow, really? Okay. Um, it, see, it's all, I'm just looking at the match time, 12.43. It felt a lot longer than that. So piecing it all together for me a couple of weeks afterwards is uh, proving a bit of a trial. But uh, nevertheless, I shall press on. I thought it was impressive for the amount of time he was in there, actually. Again, pairing him with Road Dog and having him wrapped to the ring, not we talk about we talk about a lot of promise already in the first 45 minutes of this show. I'm not sure how promising that is, but I reckon he could get over on the strength of his exciting ring work. I can just hear Michael Cole saying those words. Yeah, maybe not, eh? Uh, there was enough good here. A good, strong win for the Radicals to win by 2-0 to zero in the end. I'm liking the fact that they're just no-nonsense heels again. A lot of people didn't like their first heel turn when it came in as faces with Cactus Jack turned heel again just a couple of weeks later i get that but now i think this is what they should be for a while supporting the guy they're supporting who who we talk about later good strong victory i thought saturn in particular looked good here often the forgotten man of that team perhaps reasonably so because there is we've been talking about it for two years a definite drop off from him from the other three from pure in-ring quality but i thought he looked good here and just one more thing for the people might not actually recognize this reference you're probably quite lucky if you don't, but Billy Gunn just reminds me of Bobby Davro more and more each day. <laughs> Dan, your thoughts on the first Survivor Series match? I mean, we've taken a kick into Billy Gunn, but can we also give a kick into Road Dog's hair? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Good God. <sighs> bring back the... like. It's, it's, it's never a good sign when I'm bringing please bring back the thin dreadlocks tied into a ponytail. That is god-awful. That, anyway, that hair is the thing he needs to move. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, to echo Rory, I just thought this match was kind of there. Like, K-Quick was in there for one minute. They brought quite a lot of excitement to the crowd. An amazing German suplex there. He's out of there. And then all of the crowd dies, which is pretty worrying if I'm, you know, part of the booking team who's looking at trying to build his radicals up because... Like I know you're kind of okay with it, Roy, but I thought this was a, a massive detriment to Benoit in particular, who's just I just considered him a main event talent, and now all of a sudden he's teaming up with two people he's massively ahead of in terms of being over, a guy in Eddie Guerrero who seems to be plummeting in terms of relevancy every single week. He's been squashed by Steve Austin. He then loses the belt to Billy Gunn a week later after this match. Why is he still with them? At the end of at the end of this month, I just don't see it personally. If it's another way to be him to be elevated against Austin, cool, but that's not going to happen for a while, I don't think. Um, and I know they're trying with Billy, but to make him kind of what he was in 1999 when he had that terrible failed King of the Ring push, but he's gassed after after the 10 minutes. Like he comes in for a hot tag, he's okay, and then he comes in for the second stretch in the final home as the last man and he can't even lift so Saturn up for a jackhammer I just it's, it's, to me he just looked gassed and that's bad if you're again trying to elevate him to be an upper mid card kind of intercontinental title level 
he just doesn't have that charisma. He doesn't have that work, worker mentality that, you know, the great guys in this radical stable do have. Um, so, yeah, apart from K-Quick, I took very little positives out of this match. And, yeah, that's really worrying because it's got probably my worker of the year in it. Just to quickly come back on Benoit, I see what you're saying, Dan. I still think you can have him part of the Radicals, but you can break him off when you need to. I don't think it's necessarily a demotion for him. I mean, he was wrestling Austin on TV the day after this. Okay, he lost clean as a sheet in eight minutes, but details, details. Having him be the leader of the Radicals, and as such, given that role, he is then put forward for semi-main events at least until he gets a genuine main event run, if slash when, I still think it can work. I agree with you on Eddie, though. He's going nowhere fast. That is a concern. Yeah, it was It was actually a surprise to me. Like the, I know it was Eddie who hit China with the belt and got her out there, but I was, I was surprised that that was so early in the match, really, um, considering as kind of storylines go in the match, there was kind of, not a lot going on, and that was one that you could have maybe relied on a bit for a bit of crowd heat and investment. Um, my, uh, I shared sort of the same concerns about how the the crowd's enjoyment seemed to die around the time K Quick was eliminated. I think a lot of that is to do. I would lay the blame at Pro Dog and Billy Gunn. Really, um, I, I I think um, we know that. To varying degrees, the radicals are all good workers, um, and we know that there was a time where Billy Gunn and Road Dog would very much have the crowd hyped up and uh, invested, and that was really lacking here. And then as soon as Quay Quick went, um, I, I just don't think anyone really cares about the one Billy Gunn, like, and in, especially in a one v three babyface situation. Like, I just don't think he has any semblance of crowd support that drives sort of like the baby face fire that you need in that environment he's not really the right choice for that scenario um and i think the match suffered because of it um just a quick word on k quick because i thought he looked quite good here um i i kind of like the character like i he just turned up on what the second roar of the month he'd been on was it heat on a couple of times and whatnot but just came out at the end of a road dog match against william regal and uh just caused a dq and then was just like it's time to rap guys and then just started rapping and i thought do you know what um i would rather listen to k quick rap than i would watch uh, a road dog singles match for eight minutes so that was a good thing in my book Thanks for confirming that. <laughs> Next up, we have Chris Jericho taking on Kane in a singles match. Uh, this rivalry stemmed from the fact that the uh, that Chris Jericho accidentally spilled a cup of coffee on Kane. No, I'm not kidding. There's not really much more to it than that. Slugfest to start. Kane lands some strikes on Jericho. Jericho comes back with an awkward set of moves. Uh, he hits... Uh, say that very loosely, a drop kick and gets caught in the ropes att attempting a diving crossbody to the outside. They brawl on the outside. Kane throws Jericho into the steps. Jericho hits a springboard drop kick to Kane as he's on the apron. Then Jericho drop kicks the steel steps into Kane's head on the outside. Jericho takes it back to the ring but gets caught with a power slam by Kane for two. Kane beats down, down on Jericho as the crowd begin to get bored. Jericho hits a drop kick 
off a flying clothesline attempt by Kane. He goes on a flurry, hitting a missile drop kick and driving Kane into ex- an exposed buckle for a near fall. Jericho applies the walls, but Kane crawls to the ropes. Jericho drags Kane back to the center, reapplies the hold, but they have an awkward tumble and Jericho falls down. Jericho hits a bulldog on Kane. He goes for the lion salt, but Kane catches him by the throat, hits a choke slam, and gets the pin. Dan, what did you make of this match? Mm, match itself, I expected better from Jericho, to be honest. I thought, yeah, as you mentioned, he completely whiffed the drop kick. He caught himself on the top rope when he went for a suicide dive. Yeah, I don't know what's going on with Jericho today, but he didn't bring his A game. And that's, you know, we've, you know, when you work in a very high risk style like he does, occasionally things do go wrong. So there's no detriment to him as a person, but it's just you have to kind of downgrade the match a little bit in that regard. I thought Kane looked great. Um, you know, he's looking in good shape. I keep waiting for this kind of monster push to, to, to kind of kick on. And I think that he's done that with this few. He's made Jericho kind of go through a lot of hell in the last, you know, couple of weeks on TV. He's thrown in through a window. He's choked standing through a table. And some of the rest holes he's pulling out were really showing off his strength. It looked good, in my opinion. The problem is, is that when you've got a tiny wrestler like Chris Jericho, whose finishing move is a Boston Crab, it looks absolutely dreadful on a seven foot, seven foot tall monster like Kane. So it does take me out the moment slightly when Kane is basically lying flat on his stomach with Jericho desperately trying to lift his legs up, trying to sell it as in pain. I'm just going, no, this just does not look believable. And I don't know why they just didn't go for more of the lion salt aspects, like and just remove all the Jericho and just tell that in the story rather than making it look a bit hokey for my liking. So yeah, quite messy the match, but I do actually agree with Kane getting the pin here. He he's I, I, again stat for you guys. Kane has only pinned three wrestlers clean on pay per view in three years, wow. and Chris Chris Jericho is one of them. So. Kane does need a little bit of a few wins here and there. He isn't Teflon like think like Jericho is. So giving Kane the win here, establishing him as a monster was needed to make, you know, I think for the greater good. So it was it was OK. I, I think I enjoyed it more than I probably do with most people. But yeah, I think it was OK. Rory. So this started over spilt coffee, right? Yep. Stephanie McMahon, creative control. Okay, so, <laughs> and there's another one for you. Told you. Yeah, I, this time last year, I was the person, perhaps only the person, exercising caution over the rather ropey start Chris Jericho got off to. I was saying, okay, it's not going to happen yet. It already feels like an endless feud with Rodok. It feels like an even more endless one, if that's possible, with China. Don't worry. He can spin his wheels at this point. I think they like him backstage. It's going to happen. April happened. Some decent matches with Benoit happened. And now this is happening. And I have finally, a year too late, some might say, joined the ranks of people who think that Jericho is now outright in trouble. This was not a good in-ring performance by him. Gave the impression of somebody who really did not want to be there. Slow, sloppy, poor psychology. I mean, he says the reason he has amended the pretty damn cool lion tamer to the 
not very cool, really, Walls of Jericho. It's because in the Federation, he's wrestling bigger guys, and the Lion Tamer doesn't look as convincing. Well, lightly pulling on a six foot ten man's knees is not especially convincing either. So that one does not hold water, I'm afraid. Kane did look good here, didn't he? I think he's done a bit of weight, as Del Boy would say. Carries out everything he needs to in the ring with a plum. Nothing spectacular, nothing flashy. Doesn't need to be. He's got his moves. He's got his rest holds. He sticks to them. He does them when he needs to. And as such, when Kane does get pinfall wins on, but I have no idea it was only three, by the way. When he does get pinfall wins on pay-per-view, they mean something. This probably is for him, in all fairness, just a stop on the road before probably getting a little bit of a move back up the card. But I'm not sure that is the case for Jericho. And when you see what he does have at his disposal, Chris Jericho is, as Karl Marx would no doubt say if he was a pro wrestling fan in the year 2000, he is nothing, but he should be everything. Yeah, I I thought this was pretty poor from Jericho, uh, really off his game and quite sloppy. Um, I, I, uh, I'm quite a big Kane fan. Are we going to make me talk about Survivor Series 99? And, and We're not going to make you talk. No. We, 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 do we need to make <laughs> It took you. a year to get you off this, mate. <laughs> Look, I'm back on it, all right? Um, actually, I'm, I'm on it less now. Big Show's not around every month, ruining my life. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think he's... Uh, definitely got a spot higher up the card um sort of like he feels like kane could kind of be like if you've got a baby face champion coming out of wrestlemania then kane's like a good first title feud for that guy like maybe that's kind of the role i would see him fitting in pretty perfectly um yeah he was uh i mean on paper if you have a chris jericho kane match you wouldn't say that coming out of it it was a disappointment because Chris Jericho had kind of let it down a bit. Um, I think that would be a surprise. So surprisingly poor, I would say this match was, but definitely would lay the blame firmly on one side of the two. Chris, just briefly, what do you think of Jericho at the moment? Is he yep. going backwards fast? It looks yeah, like I, it to me. I, I, I'm really worried about him, to be honest. Like, you go back to, is it fully loaded with the Hunter match? Yes. Um, since then, um, yeah, he's back to square one in the big way. I don't think the X-Pac feud did anything for him um, and seemed to go on quite a while. And this result felt like the correct one, which I think is quite a big indictment. Um, and he doesn't feel like someone anymore who would right now fit in that main event scene. Um I mean, we'll talk about it by the end of the show, but we end up with a six-man match for the WWF title next month. Um, I think most people would tend to agree, maybe not in storyline, but like sort of on paper, Rikishi's kind of like the odd man out there. Um, and if you were to replace him right now, I don't know that Jericho would be on my short list to do so. So, um, yeah, I think it's uh, kind of a sad state of affairs, but I, I think it's kind of... <laughs> justified in a way i think they fumbled it a bit coming out of fully loaded and they didn't really try a lot with him since then 
But I think the last couple of feuds have been rather lackluster. And I think his performances, maybe it's disinterest because he's not enjoying the storylines he's involved in as much. But I think he's taken his foot off the pedal a bit here and it shows. Very tough when you've got Undertaker and Austin coming back, which for all their faults are still two of the biggest names in wrestling. And you've got Chris Jericho also trying to compete with The Rock. Where, does, where do you fit a guy in? And I just honestly feel it's one of those instances where you have too many big stars for to keep them all happy. And maybe his performances have suffered because of it. I think that's fair. Um, I, I, I think, considering they didn't know till October who the driver was going to be, is that something Chris Jericho could have done? And align with Triple H in a big way wouldn't really make sense considering what's gone on in the year between him and Hunter. But Rikishi didn't make more sense, did it? So I think he'd be better in the role. Um, <laughs> it would be something for him to do. Um, but yeah, I, I I do think it's it's tough uh, considering the number of guys you've got in the main event and just below, and even people like Benoit that have been in main events this year and aren't currently there right now, but you know should be or, or will be again. Um, Jericho feels like a, a rung or two below them. He's no Billy Gunn, but he's uh, <laughs> he's definitely. Uh, I mean, when you look at WrestleMania, you've got Benoit, Benoit, Angle, and Jericho in the uh, freeway match. Um, I I think he's uh, definitely by a long way fared the worst out of those three throughout the year, and I think that's a big surprise considering uh, how talented he is. Next up, William Regal defends his European title against Hardcore Holly. Regal cuts a promo ripping on the Florida crowd, making fun of the whole country over the electoral college fiasco with Bush and Gore before we get underway. Regal is really aggressive early on, works the left arm of Holly, sends it into the ring post. Holly goes for a suplex, but Regal pulls him down by grabbing the arm. Regal waves to uh, taunt and piss off the crowd some more. He... uh, Gets a cross-arm breaker submission. The crowd is pretty flat, though, before Regal ties Holly up in the ropes. Holly comes back with some punches and two clotheslines. He tosses Regal over the top to the floor and sends him into the steps. Holly then grabs the European title, nails Regal with it for the DQ in just over five minutes. Rory, what did you make of this one? Not much, really. Same as we always say about Regal, and we have every time we've talked about him, wherever he's been for the last seven years, that there's no one else like him in North America. That is to his eternal credit, but it does mean it's hard to get great or even good matches that he's involved in because the styles clash is just so prominent. Steve Regal might well be the best worker who's had at least three and a half star plus matches. More so than I can think of. Certainly anybody we've talked about in the seven years we've been doing this. It's not his fault. You can't blame him for working the style he does because he's so damn good at it. But it doesn't make the great. They probably thought Hardcore Holly was the person who could take that offense, but he isn't. I think Holly's position as an internet darling is frankly laughable, but there you go. You warned me about going on the internet this year, Chris. That's why. Well, only one more thing worth picking up from this one is the commentary when uh, Lawler and Ross were talking about the forthcoming 
pay-per-view here in Sheffield that we will review next month on the show. And Lawler pipes up and says, are we going to go to Piccadilly Circus to look at the clowns? <laughs> not funny. But then JR overthought his response and says, we're not going to be anywhere near Manchester. Oh, Jim. Dan, over to you. Excellent point by Rory. And a belief I've held about Regal for a long time about the matches count. I don't personally think you can be a great worker if you don't have the match to back it up. So thank you for someone else who shares my opinion on that on Mr. Regal. However, if it means I get to see Mr. Regal come out and insult those bloody swine Americans for their terrible <laughs> voting, then I will gladly take it because this that was all this match was there for. Like literally all, all I could see was like William Regal coming out just for a tell you know, run the crowd down promo and his hilarious face when Bob Holly interrupts him. If that's what I get on pay-per-view to get William Regal, I'll take it. The views of Dan Welling are not necessarily those of. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really have much to add. It's a raw match, isn't it? It's kind of like a whole raw segment, like the promo to get the heat on the crowd. Very, very sort of simple um, in terms of just easy to rip on a hometown crowd. And and then, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think um, Regal's offense um, sort of working over a hill, uh, working over a babyface story as a hill, necessarily works with hardcore Holly as that baby face. Um, and then instead of like any sort of comeback, we just have the cheap DQ within five minutes. Yeah, it's just a raw match. Um, nothing terrible. Just don't know why it's on my pay-per-view. Moving on. And we have finally the match between Rikishi and The Rock. Uh, so, yeah, obviously this rivalry been built up after, over the last month or so as uh, Rikishi uh, revealed that he was the man who ran over Stone Cold Steve Austin and then eventually blamed The Rock for the plan um, and then turned against The Rock as well as Austin. I don't know why. I don't think they do either. Nope. So, The Rock runs to the ring to get us going, hits Rikishi with some punches and a Samoan drop before he goes for a chair, but the ref drags it away and Rikishi uses the distraction to hit a thrust kick and take control of the match. Rikishi beats down Rock for a while, begins targeting the chest area. Ref takes a bump on the outside and Rikishi gets a sledgehammer from under the ring, attempts to use it, but The Rock prevents it. Rock hits a rock bottom, but it's only a near fall by the time the ref comes round. Rock beats on Rikishi, but he hits a, uh, a Samoan drop, followed by a bonsai drop for two. Rikishi hits the stink face in the corner, but the rock seems to power out of it. Hits a big clothesline, which flips Rikishi. Rock, injured, selling here, hits a spine buster, but then follows with a people's elbow for the free and wins the match. Dan, uh, Rikishi's big hill run's going well. <laughs> You always heat back at the end. You can't blame him too much. Oh, like of the, course. Yes. Oh, sorry. You I know should... what? For, for all we rag on him, and Roy mentioned earlier, he is trying. And I think at some points I do genuinely get like, okay, if he wrestled in the suit and the leather with the, you know, and he came out to the ring in that, I could kind of get it. But it's just the the ass on him. I can't take him seriously <laughs> when he's wrestling with that on. And, like, and, I, and I associate it with the fun dancing, you know, guy who does stink faces to the heels and everyone cheers. It's too much of 
a similarity complex. He needs he needed a complete overhaul to make this completely work for me. And yeah, I don't get it. But for all of Rikishi's packaging faults, I thought this was still my favorite match of the night. Um, and if that is down to the top guy in wrestling right now, The Rock, this uh, the storyline he he has done and the the amount of trying he's done to put Rikishi over here is ridiculous. He runs to the ring straight away to indicate how important this match is to him. He sells the living, the ever-loving god out of Rikishi's offense. He's willing to take a stink face. He is basically going all above to try and make Rikishi cement as a top-class heel. And that is what a top guy wrestler should be doing. Because, yeah, The Rock right now for me is... is you compare what The Rock did for Rikishi to what Stone Cold did last month. Stone Cold ran him over, almost literally, but ran him over as a character and a wrestler with as if, as if a truckload went straight along into Rikishi last month and basically killed him stone dead. The Rock is doing all he can to revitalize him. And I thought this match was almost a, a one-man show and The Rock desperately trying to get Rikishi over. Apart from the very long time we took to cover Rikishi with the people's elbow. But yeah, for me, The Rock was an absolute star in this match to try and help his family out. Um, but whether it's it's in time or not is, is worth another question because, as I said, Rikishi's character is too similar to that fun dancing character six months ago, which everyone fell in love with. Yeah, I should say, um, really, I, we, I think we've all maybe ragged on Rikishi a bit here or there, but you're right, and, and kind of none of it's really his fault. He's just so miscast, and when he wrestles in that outfit and he's hitting the stink face, and it's just like the juxtaposition to the Rikishi that we've known in the past year is just, it's almost comical to kind of overcome that and see him as this big, bad, dangerous heel, at least... Yeah, in, in my mind, as well as yours, Dan. Um, Rory, what did you make of this match? Yeah, absolutely agree. This was all about The Rock. It probably should really have been all about Rikishi, but it was all about The Rock trying to make it all about Rikishi. Yeah, stunning stuff from Rock in this one. He, he One of his finest outright performances, I think, because I'm sure deep down, if you were to ask him, in an unguarded moment, he will tell you that this whole feud, everything with Rikishi, fast going down the tubes, he did his level best to salvage anything he could from here. And sell, even selling the stink face like it was a devastating move. It, you know, it didn't look ridiculous when he was doing that, or not very ridiculous anyway. Every punch, every kick, the work around the ribs, it's expert selling from The Rock in this one. Mm. We don't talk about his in-ring work often enough because everything else with The Rock is everything else and it what makes him what he is and why he's loved, beloved by so many fans and quite rightly so. But he is a, I think he's a great worker. I think we can call him that now. A great WWF style worker at the very least. His timing is impeccable. Yeah, he probably did need to win this one and I don't mind Rikishi getting his heat inverted commas back at the end either i think a lot of the very good reviews for this match i've seen it getting four stars in some quarters are purely related to the rock not to say rikishi wasn't trying in there we said it at the top of the show he's doing his best but i think he's been showing us his best for the last year 
going over lower mid-card heels in six or seven minutes than dancing with too cool. Now, that's all right. That's fine. Not everybody can be main event level. Not everybody can be, especially can be a main event heel. It's very, very sorry to see. They're still, to this day, at the end of the month, we'll talk about it a bit later on, where they're going. They are still making the effort. They're not abandoning it yet. Uh, now it just looks like clinging to the wreckage, and we all know what happens when you try to do that. But Rock's performance here, exemplary. Yeah, um, the best match so far by by distance. The Rock was um, spectacular. Um, definitely one of his better performances and it's it's a very different performance to to that wwf main event style that he's been so accustomed to working this year which is normally the sort of like oh well i suppose not not so much but a lot of it can be sort of walking brawl and also a lot of interference um and this was a very different match um i i can't i do feel slightly sorry for rikishi at times because I can't get past how badly miscast he is because I was quite a fan of him before the turn. I think that's probably the biggest grievance is that, I mean, it's not that you could never do it, but like that's gone now, that character. And that was a fun character and it was a plus for most shows. Um, And it worked and it got the crowd up every time and, and and kind of like you're never gonna get that back with him in the same way. Um and truthfully, I'm not sure I mean we talk about Jericho not really fitting in a main event picture. Rikishi certainly doesn't, despite sort of being shoehorned in there into December. Um and I I I don't know, I, I feel like the fall will take him further than where he was before this ever started. Um, and it's definitely not his fault. Um, new gear in the ring is a must. I, I mean, I personally would drop the stink face like from your repertoire now. That's not a heel move. No. Um, regardless of how well the rock can sell it, um, I would, yeah, get rid of that. But yeah, this was a really good match. Um, but I do think it speaks volumes about sort of the storyline and, and Rikishi's placement within it that despite the really good match, it didn't do very much for him. So, um, yeah, definitely a big plus for the show, but long-term storyline hasn't really changed much for Rikishi. Backstage, we see Triple H sitting, hanging out with the Radicals. Foley shows up. He says he's no, he knows that Hunter's up to something, and he says that the Radicals are barred from ringside for the main event. Foley then says that because Austin deserves payback, the match is going to be no DQ, which at the time I was like, well, it just seems so contradictory. No disqualification, so the radicals are barred. Well, what if they show up? What are you going to do? You can't, can't disqualify anyone. But yeah. Don't make me mention Stephanie McMahon creative control. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping, I'm, I was I'm hoping. trying to rein myself in here. <laughs> Next up, we have the WWF Women's Championship match as Ivory defends the belt against Lita. Lita opens with some kicks and punches. Ivory retaliates. Uh, and one of them uh, catches Lita um, flush. And uh, yeah, she's busted open hard way from just above the eye. Quite a nasty cut. 
Lita hits a head scissors and a hurricane runner. Stephen Richard comes uh, to ringside. Uh, Lita hits a diving crossbody out onto Ivory and Richards, but uh, and then another diving crossbody in the ring for two. Lita heads up. She tries a moonsault, but Stevie pulls Ivory out of the way. Ivory gets uh, the belt. Stevie distracts the ref. Lita ducks the belt shot. She hits a back suplex. She takes off her shirt, which arguably gets one of the biggest pops of the night so far. Goes up for the moonsault, but Ivory gets the belt in the way, gets the cover, and retains the title. Rory, what did you make of this one? Worth noting on commentary that JR did actually call it a hard way right hand. That was his description when he saw the replay. Insider terms are everywhere these days, but I'll let him off for that. Yeah, kind of what a horrible, horrible sick shot it was. I don't know if Ivory caught her right on with her knuckle or I don't know a straight ring or something, but Lita was that was hideous that stuff. That was that was pouring, and it wasn't one of those wounds which we see so often where this uh, uh, takes place and it cuts into somebody's hairline this was right in her temple and it was both scabbing and pouring really just well oh, playing it out of my head now it was horrible so the fact the match only went 453 probably just as well so it's hard to really judge praise or criticize a whole lot of it because i <laughs> it probably wouldn't have been a darn sight better without the injury to Lita, but it's a mitigating factor. She's tightening up, tightening up her work in the ring a little bit, I think, Lita. Still a bit of a way to go, but she's got the crowd behind her. Natural support, as we've talked about on here before. I think, I'm not sure in what role it's going to be, but I do think she could have a big, big future. Be it as a wrestler, be it as... 21st century Elizabeth or something. I don't know, but they've really got something here. and You can't buy connections with the crowd that she has. And I'm just trying to store time rather than talk about the match because all you can really discuss is that horrible, horrible injury. But thankfully, she's okay. Dan? Um, you know what WWE have done here is that they've done what they've done to the tag division with the women a year ago no two years ago chris you nominated the tag division for the wahoo award and then very quietly over a year over the year they revitalized it and slowly re- regenerated it with teams like edge and christian the dudley Zahadis, the acolytes you know too cool etc last year you nominated the women's division for the wahoo award and now they're slowly revitalizing it with the women again they've as Roy has gushed over Lita, and quite rightly so. I think she's just the most natural baby face they probably have seen for almost 10 years in the women's division. I'm really struggling to think of someone who's got that much of a crowd connection other than Sable, who generally got cheered because she was blonde and had big boobs. Ivory is just an amazingly good heel as a women's wrestler. Her women, the women's title is perfect. You know, the RTC, what for rights and wrongs of winning them, winning the belts over the big three are not far for later on in the show. But she as the women's champion is amazing. It's perfect. She's just the most natural heat, you know, heat generating women's wrestler right now they've got. Then you add in Molly Holly. You add in the very certainly gradually improving Trish. You add in Jackie, who is still a really tough, good, solid hand wrestler. And all of a sudden you have five very good women's wrestlers and 
you have a division. You have a division again. All we need, all we need now is to add in someone like Jazz from ECW, and we could have a proper women's division. And once again, WWF was very quietly and throughout a lot of publicity, completely right-sized that women's division, and it's made it watchable. So I will give the company, once again, I need to go with the tag division, immense credit for that. The match itself, again, Lita, we've all we gushed over her for her character and her just natural connection with the crowd. She still needs a lot of improvement in the ring. I think Raw is probably the most word I can use to describe her right now. She has a very good head scissors. She can do a moonsault, but she can't really do an arm lock. So that's something that we really need to work on if we want to make her the centerpiece of the division. But with good solid hands like Ivory, Jackie, and now probably Molly in the division, she can do that. And we already know how good she is with gender wrestling. So I am very positive about the women's division going forward. Um, we've got rid of Mae Young, I think. We've got rid of the cat. We've, Terry's now relegated to a bit part player of the Radicals. We've done it, Chris. I think we've got it again. I think we're okay. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not sceptical that, that we're through the worst of it, but I've just been hurt too many times to be fully on board. With, <laughs> we're, not, we're not where we were with the tag division yet, but we are definitely making a lot of progress, which is great news. I, I definitely agree, and I think it's something that maybe has gone a bit under my radar this year. Um, maybe because very occasionally something from the old days does seem to crop up. Um, but maybe not for the last couple of months or so. Um, and yeah, I, uh, I, maybe they do deserve a bit of credit. Um, maybe I'll have to sort of reevaluate my perspective. Um, but yeah, I think that's a very good point. Um, yeah, not much to say on the match though. Um, I thought Lita did well to considering, I mean, we all know about maybe her inexperience in the ring necessarily or, and kind of her abilities in there. I think she did well to sort of keep her composure and the match basically played out almost exactly as it would have done cut or no cut. Um, and it was quite a nasty um, injury as we've mentioned. So I think she deserves um, a decent amount of credit for that, for getting through the match, keeping composed and, uh, and um, yeah, tying things up nicely. Next up, we have our WWF Championship match uh, with Kurt Angle defending his title against The Undertaker. Much to the delight of Rory, I'm sure. Let's hope we don't get a repeat of Fully Loaded. Uh-huh. Angle stalls uh, to open, not wanting to get into the ring. Taker goes and gets a steel chair, throws it at Angle's feet, inviting him to come at him. The ref takes the chair off Angle, but Angle grabs it back, hits Taker with it from behind before the start of the match. The match then starts with Angle beating down the Undertaker in the corner. Taker comes back and punches away on Angle in the corner, hits a big boot and a leg drop for two as he pulls Angle up to break the count. An elbow drop follows and Taker lifts Angle up to break the count at two again. We're about, what, 60 seconds in at this point and we've already done it twice. Taker then goes old school with a rope walk and beats away at Angle until he ducks a punch and comes back with a German suplex. Angle knocks Taker outside, but Taker catches him on the leap, drives him spine first into the ring post twice. They bring it back in the ring and Angle goes after Taker's knee. Taker manages to put Angle in a Fujiwara armbar, but Edge and Christian come down. 
Edge distracts the referees. Angle starts tapping, just like he tapped a rock sharpshooter at no mercy. But Taker goes after Christian, but he hotshots Taker on the top rope. Angle goes to work on the knees again until Taker is able to fight out. He goes outside and attacks Edge and Christian. Hemner breaks it up and sends them to the back. Taker returns to the ring, catches Angle in a choke slam, but Hebner's still busy dealing with Edge and Christian on the ramp. He's slow to return to the ring, so the very delayed count only gets a late two. Angle applies a figure four leg lock, but Taker reverses it, and Angle has to crawl to the ropes. Angle um, gets hit with a power slam, but kicks out. He then goes after the knee again, works it over, then applies a figure four on the ring post. Taker comes back, hits Angle's head off the top turnbuckle. Angle hits a low blow that somehow the ref just doesn't care about and lifts Taker. Taker then reverses it, looks to go for a tombstone, but Angle kicks his legs and the momentum uh, means he gets to the apron and uh, gets away. Taker then knocks him to the outside. Kurt's on the floor. He crawls under the ring, but Taker drags him back out and throws him back in the ring. He sets up for the last ride, hits it, and Hebner suddenly stops the count as he's about to get to the free. Taker then gets up, gets in Hebner's face, and Kurt appears from under the ring on the other side. Schoolboys Taker for the free count. Angle retains the title, running away as quickly as possible, celebrating, leaving the body that looks very much like his laying flat out in the ring following that last ride. Post-match, the camera focuses on the fake Angle in the ring, and while he might look a bit like Kurt, um, sort of from the hard cam, uh, zoomed in. That is definitely not Kurt Angle. I don't know how uh, the Undertaker didn't notice that, but there we are. Kurt Angle retains his title. Rory, what did you make of this? Oh, so much that would have been run-worthy if I hadn't expunged all my energy and ability to care. If I <laughs> Yeah, ability to care. Uh, fully loaded. But yes, once again, pulling up a pins after two minutes, about four or five visual victories and submissions for The Undertaker. Yeah. Just go back to the July show if you want to hear me really let rip on that one. I've calmed down a little bit now because at least Kurt Angle escaped with the belt this time. And this match did have some semblance of structure to it rather than a no self I'm going to promise myself I wouldn't do it. It's over. It's over. Kurt Angle's a champion. It's over. Okay. This match had some structure to it. There was a bit back and forth. I thought the interference from Edge and Christian came at just the right time. You probably do need that if you're going to get over their alliance, Edge, Christian and Angle. It makes sense that they would be out there to try to help him retain the title when The Undertaker is looking so dominant. There I go again. But um, And it was fine. It was main event style light, really. Not the best performance from Angle we've seen so far. Probably one of the best from The Undertaker, but we all know what a bar that is. And I do think the crowd here, I, if I'd been there in attendance, I would certainly have probably been leading this. My only real concern, and I do mean the word concern, is how they were going to get out of this match. The previous 15 minutes felt perfunctory really it was either going to be a case of Angle was going to steal the title or The Undertaker was going to steal, sorry, win the world championship as it was though, what we got was another Stephanie McMahon throwback finish, this time to 1993 and I hate this sort of thing because 
for the characters involved, as much as the McMahon family would never like to admit it, pro wrestling is still a sport. Okay, they the characters are not supposed to know what is going to happen. And for this finish to make any sense, Kurt Angle needs to be aware of the following. He needs to know that he will evade defeat in the first 15 minutes. He needs to know there will be an opening for him to hide under the ring. He needs to know that Undertaker will follow. He needs to know that Undertaker will reach under the ring and pull out his brother, who we're not going to name just yet, who is also under the ring. He needs to know Undertaker is going to drag him back in. He needs to know Undertaker is going to give him the last ride. He needs to know Undertaker is going to go for the cover. He needs to know Oh, Habner is only going to count two before realizing who it is. He needs to know he could sneak back in the ring unattended. And he needs to know that his roll-up is going to keep The Undertaker down for the count of three. I need to know who came up with this finish. Oh, yeah. I know. Dan, what did you make of this match? Rory, sometimes your logic really annoys me because I was like, this is a really cool finish. And now you've just done that. And I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah. I make far too much sense, don't I? Yeah, damn it. Really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, i I got to be honest. You know, We know how bloody protective The Undertaker's been and how unwilling he has been to, to blood in the youth this year so far. So we know we had to kind of go above and beyond you know the the causes of, of of nonsense to to get him you know to, to lose this match without it being a DQ. Uh, so I thought this was in its own pure only wrestling could do this way. I thought this actually achieved its goal. Um, clearly, I have a my logical brain to clearly turned off for that you know brief thirty seconds because uh, yeah I was quite entertained by it. So I do apologise to all our loyal listeners for my relapse i'm sorry um the match itself again all the points roy raised about the undertaker being a prick at the start are completely <laughs> true how dare you even you know not even do a choke like not even a choke slam like just an elbow drop and a leg drop as if it was with hulk hogan back in the 80s so they no do not do this to someone who's worked and is so damn good in kurt angle does not deserve that um but yeah i thought the match itself was Again, kind of there, you know. Angle couldn't really bring out the the big guns that he has done with the Rock because I don't think Taker was willing to play ball. But you know, just little moments of him screaming, "Ah, God, no!" When Taker catches him before for the for the ring post drive, um, him nearly crying in the figure four. Just even if he can't show off how good he is in the ring, just the little character moments still tell how good Angle is. Um, and how good he will be in the coming years. So, look, for the greater good, Angle winning against The Undertaker was the best result we could get. And, yeah, uh, it was okay, and I clearly retract my comments about the finish being good. I, I think we're kind of, like, being a bit too kind. I think we're looking through this match of the lens of knowing that The Undertaker is a prick. <laughs> <laughs> And in fact, that if we not? if we don't give it that consideration and ha- and probably have the expectation going in that it's going to be worse than it ended up being, 
I think we're not aggrieved enough that within 60 seconds he hit a leg drop and then pinned him and then hit an elbow drop and then pinned him and then also got a visual pinfall five minutes later with a choke slam. Like, it's 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 a new champion. Like it's it's not fully loaded anymore. He's not like this like newcomer on the scene. He he's meant to be the WWF champion. And I know that it's The Undertaker working with Kurt Angle, but it really aggrieved me. And I think any sort of goodwill I had towards the work in this match, and there was a a, a, a bit at least, um, and and more, uh, definitely a lot more psychology. And there were things to like in it more, definitely like a whole load more than compared to the last pay-per-view encounter these two had. I, I, I just feel like those bits spoiled it for me. And it's like, could could you possibly do less for a world champion than this? Like without like, and I don't know. It just wound me up so much. And then I thought the finish, I sort of fell down. I'm going to use this analogy twice on this show. And, but the, the Venn diagram between good and enjoyable is anything but a circle. And this to me, I thought was rubbish but fun. So I kind of liked the finish, and I think a large part of that has to be given as credit to Kurt because of the way he celebrated it. And like clearly, like we find out it's his brother. We'll talk about it later. But like his brother is like <laughs> unconscious, unmoving in the ring, and Kurt is like nearly crying with happiness, having retained his title. He's gone. He could not care less about his brother. And uh, just, I appreciate like the nuances of his character and his facial expressions and all the things he does as a performer and as a worker that should be way beyond his in-ring years. Um, so I want to hate the match because The Undertaker is a prick um, and we shouldn't make allowances for him being a prick. We should just outright recognize that he is that um, and therefore punish the match. But Kurt Angle's too good, so I suppose it was all right on balance. I hope that's carte blanche for the future now, Chris. Again, once again, I've tried to rein myself in because our listeners, our listenership is at stake here, really. But if you're saying uh, Undertaker's pricked them and it's now open season on him whenever we wish, then... And just, just because he was a prick in the past does not mean we should expect and, and sort of not be as angry when he's a prick in the present. Noted. That's all. Chris, keep Roy away from the WWF shows for the next good number of years. Hey, I, I'm it. presenting the next one, and he's on the he's on the UK tour next month. Oh, no. <laughs> so, moving on to another traditional Survivor Series elimination match, and we have the Dudleys teaming with the Hardys to take on Edge, Christian, and Bull Buchanan, and the good father of RTC. The Dudleys are worked over by RTC to kick things off, but it isn't long before things break down and we have everyone in the ring. The Dudleys and the Hardys hit a quadruple DDT on the heels before the Hardys take their jumpers off to reveal T-shirts which match the Dudleys' camo. They hit poetry in motion on Edge. Matt goes for the leg drop, but Val Venus hotshots him on the top rope and Edge hits the Edge-O-Matic on Matt for the elimination. Devon takes an unprettier for Christian shortly after, and we have our second elimination. Bubba's in, he beats on Christian for tagging in Jeff, who hits a springboard split-legged moonsault, but Christian kicks out. 
Jeff gets worked over, but gets a hot tag to Bubba, who cleans house. Bubba dodges a spear by Edge, which hits Bull, and then Bubba is able to get the cover for the elimination. Bubba hits a Bubba Bomb on Edge, dodges a leap by Christian, sends him splashing onto Edge. Bubba gets the cover, and Edge is eliminated. So we're down to Jeff and Bubba versus Goodfather and Christian. Goodfather and Christian rush the ring. Goodfather hits a DVD on Bubba to eliminate him. Jeff hits Goodfather off the apron and hits Christian with a slanton bomb to eliminate him. Goodfather wants the hoe train, but Jeff avoids it. Goodfather and Val Venus then collide on the apron, and Jeff gets Jeff gets the cover to pick up the mat, uh, the win for his team after ten minutes. Post match, RTC run back out with Richards and beat down Jeff. However, the Dudleys and Hard uh, and Matt return uh, to make the save. Matt puts Val through a table with a leg drop, and Richard gets powerbombed through another table by the Dudleys. Dan, what did you make of this? Um, it's a bit of an upgrade on the first Survivor Series match, but not drastically. Um, look, Bubba Ray Dudley had one of the best hot tag segments I've ever seen in this match, which is always a plus. But again, like Rory said, it was too bitty and not long enough to be actually, you know, a good structured match to be considered to me good. And it, I remember Edge and Christian and the Hardy Boys had um, a Survivor Series match last year, and I think it was better than this. Like, last year they were in a bit more of an impressed mode, but now they're, you know, cemented as one of the big free tag teams in the world. You don't need to go out all the spots, so they just have to kind of play with the motions and play for the crowd, and they were happy for it. Um, RTC is tag champs and kind of gate crashing this little you know trio that we've got going on is i can understand it because of you know get the heat magnets on on the heels but as workers born and godfather just don't come close so they were pretty clunky in the ring so again godfather going the final elimination from a clothesline and mid in mid-ring collision again was pretty kind of hokey but the RTC's purpose right now is to generate heat and have Stephen Richards be put through tables at the end of the match. And they fulfilled that purpose. So probably more of a match for the crowd rather than a match for pay-per-view. Rory, over to you. Yeah, Survivor Series rules aside, this one felt rather house showish, And its position just before the main event bears that out, really three teams here that people really care about and one team people like seeing being made to be humiliated and ending up through tables leads to a 10 minute survivor series match just before the reason everybody really bought the pay-per-view couple of things of note all the things that matt hardy has survived over the last year and a bit and he's out of the match in two minutes to a move that I don't think, even think is Edge's singles finisher. I don't even think he has one. Uh, sort of head crusher like that. You know, I, I hope he comes up with something better going forward if he does get, get the mooted singles push last year. But poor old Matt going in two minutes to that. And on the other side of the coin, though, you've got Jeff Hardy being the survivor and getting the big pinfalls at the end. I think that is something to note going forward. Could be one, two... Come back to in a year's time, maybe. Uh, there's lots of people on this card who are setting themselves, potentially setting themselves quite the future. We'll see whether we, we were right to do that for them. 
over the next year or so, I would definitely put Jeff Hardy in that bracket. And I think, at least at the moment, his win here means something. Otherwise, this was just teams, all of whom I like to various degrees, just giving the crowd something to enjoy before something that they were about to endure. Yeah, I thought this was um, a notch above the typical sort of like match you'd put on between your two main events, as it as it were. Often they say like you're going to try and bring the crowd down, and often as a result you get quite a dull or flat match. Um, I thought this was pretty good. Um, maybe it's because I am pretty invested in um, basically everyone involved, but particularly the Hardys, the Dudleys and Edge and Christian, sorry, RTC. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think if that was the aim, you'd have probably put the other match in this spot and uh, have this open the show. This felt more like an opener um, where it was just fun, especially with the post-match stuff and the tables and just the Hardys wearing the Dudleys camo, little spots like that. Just fun stuff. Um, very little to complain about um, for me. It kind of like served its purpose, perhaps better than the usual stuff in this spot would so i think this was a thumbs up for me before we get on to the main event can i just say that how dare the wwf promote their xfl cheerleaders to the great british national anthem god save the queen how dare you do this in the sacrilege our wonderful national anthem to you you pricks noted the opinions of Dan <laughs> And finally, we have reached our main event of the evening. Stone Cold Steve Austin taking on Triple H in a no disqualification match. Austin very aggressive early with a barrage of punches. An eye poke by Hunter to create some space. Austin hits a knee to the gut before Triple H hits a face buster and Austin comes back with Fez Press, followed by some more punches and an elbow drop. They go brawling up the aisle and Austin's in control. Hunter comes back with punches of his own. They go over near the technical area, brawl into the backstage area, and Austin comes back with some more punches and a running clothesline. Suplex by Hunter by the entrance area on the floor. There's no ramp, so it's just on the floor. Um, They go back to the ringside area, Austin whipping Hunter shoulder first into steel steps. Both announce tables are cleared off. Austin hits Triple H in the head with a monitor to bust him open. Austin hits Hunter in the head with a beer cooler and drinks some beer. He said he was thirsty. Austin slams Triple H's head into the steps. Back in the ring, get into another slugfest. Hunter hits a low blow to take control. Austin comes back with a stunner attempt, but Triple H counters with a neck breaker. They go outside and... Uh, they go outside the ring and Hunter teases a pedigree on the steps, but Austin counters it with a back body drop on the announce table. Austin slams Hunter onto the broken table. Go back in the ring with Hunter backing off from the attack. Hunter stumbles around and Austin hits a stunner. Austin, though, doesn't go for the pinfall and JR says that he can't understand this strategy. Austin then gets a chair, places it around the left ankle of Hunter, threatening to break it. Hebda tells him not to do it, so Austin takes the chair off Hunter's leg, walks round and places it over his neck. The crowd are wildly cheering at the prospect of Austin uh, snapping Hunter's neck, but Hunter rolls out of the chair and away from the ring. They brawl up the aisle and spill backstage, with Austin continuing to pound away on Hunter with strikes. Austin throws Hunter into a vending machine before the Radicals show up and jump Austin. 
Eddie helps Hunter up while the other three guys beat Austin down. Hunter, seeing the radicals beat on Austin, uh, makes a getaway out of back door, uh, out of the arena, in, into the car park. Referees show up, break up the brawl. Hunter is shown getting into a car outside. Benoit and Austin are brawling, and Austin chases Benoit into the car park, and Austin, uh, yeah, Austin follows him out there. Benoit throws Austin into the side of a truck and sprints across the car park. Hunter calls out to Benoit asking where Austin is, but Benoit doesn't know. JR screaming about how they have a setup to run Austin down again. Hunter then sends Benoit inside to find him, so Benoit goes back into the arena. He's eerily quiet out, and Hunter's shown in the car. He's calling out the window looking for Austin. Suddenly, um, Austin turns up driving a forklift. He lifts Hunter's car off the ground. At this stage, he's, what, about five feet? Just slightly raised off the ground. Hunter sitting in the car. What I will mention here is that Hunter had uh, just opened one of the doors, so uh, it was still an option at this point. Austin screams at Hunter that he has one hell of a ride coming, and Hunter pleads for mercy, saying that Austin will regret this. Austin raises the car high into the air, about 30 feet when all's said and done. Austin then flips off Hunter, and the camera switches to a wide shot. We hear Hunter cry, holy shit, and Austin drops the car roof first to the ground. Austin leaves the forklift as JR screams, we've just witnessed the Rattlesnake's revenge, and the show goes off the air. Main event, no contest, but really we do have a winner by homicide, and that would be Stone Cold Steve Austin. <laughs> Rory, what did you make of this? Page one of the rule book for victories. Okay, um, quick bit of housekeeping first, as completely out of place as it is. Uh, if we still have any American listeners, I feel I should cover here by saying the tune you probably heard, Dan. Well, it was the tune for God Save the Queen, but it was probably in reference to My Country Tis of Thee, which uses the same tune as God Save the Queen. Gladys Knight sang a bit of it at WrestleMania 4. Anyway, I could gladly talk about the genesis of where that song came from rather than this, but okay, I'm going to split my review of this into two parts. I'm going to talk about the match, and I'm going to talk about what was definitely not the match. Okay. The match was kind of okay, really. It wasn't too far removed, give or take the odd boom camera, from their No Mercy 99 main event. Obvious difference, Triple H, far superior worker now. Easy for me to say, but he definitely is, no question about it. Austin, still very comfortable with this style of match for reasons we've talked about before, and his other long layoff means I don't think we're going to be seeing 1994 stunning Steve Austin tearing it up on the mat again anytime soon. But people don't want to see that. And as such, as the main events, certainly since, certainly since Backlash, have evolved quite significantly to incorporate a lot more in-ring action in amongst all the crash-bang wallops, this one actually felt quaint but at the same time a fairly comfortable throwback i was this time last year i said how beyond cheesed off i was with this style of main event as it's been a while for a one-off i was all right with it the intensity of their feud wasn't really there austin taking a beer break felt like something from a different match almost again something from a different era but I'll let it go. It was fine. Unspectacular, 
where it needed to be spectacular, but it was fine. But I want to make a point about Austin in general just before we get to that, and I'll get there. Steve Austin, for me, I saw it here, I saw it in the match against Rikishi, even in the fairly decent matches where he was allowed to wrestle a bit against Chris Benoit and Kurt Angle. He's lost his, what Diego Maradona called his, Bladranca. And it's got to be the Latin American expression there, roll the R, Bladranca. Not the Bronca, as I would call it, Bladranca. Which is Diego Maradona's indefinable, but at the same time, indefatigable sense of purpose and belief and drive. Born out of anger and disappointment and frustration. Whilst it wasn't called that by him, of course, it was that that drove the Stone Cold Steve Austin character through his very finest moments, of which there were many. And I do think, to many degrees, it carried Steve Williams himself as well. Now, in 98, when we talked about his eight-year journey finally being culminated, he had a lot to be fucking angry about. Now, has the fire in his eyes gone out a little bit? No, it was... Samuel Beckett, who said, perhaps my best years are gone, but I wouldn't want them back. Not sure that's the case with Austin. I'm prepared to give it a little more time, but for me, it doesn't quite see the same guy. It's a second generation imprint at the moment. I'm concerned at that. But nowhere near concerned as I am, as Triple H's welfare at how this one finished. Oh, my goodness me. I do hope he's okay. I hope we, before we go off the air, Chris, you're going to give us a medical update on him. I'm prepared for the worst, but I mean, we need to know these things. I mean, come on. The short way for me to describe this is Stephanie McMahon, creative control, but that's been done. Uh, and I, I feel very much done by it as well. I mean, just yes, fucking stupid sports entertainment finish. And this is her, for it is her, trying way too hard to impress daddy dearest she's given us some classic finishes not so classic finishes from the wwf's glistening past and now she's showing she can do the oh look at this explosion type thing type thing at the end completely logic defying utterly senseless so many plot holes and how they even got into position to get there that i'm not going to waste my now remaining brain cells on talking about them plainly ludicrous nobody really gets over from it it's not what i want to see steve austin doing triple h for all his actions that his character has undertaken over the last year no human being deserves this now pro wrestling it's one of its biggest blessing is almost its biggest curse that punitive justice is something we're automatically supposed to cheer and a lot of the times it's the default reaction and when you break it down it probably should be this was not one of those eye for an eye doesn't always work in society and it sure as hell didn't work here and the fact i'm even talking about things like that in the context of the final two minutes of a pro wrestling pay-per-view, sum it up all too well. Just vile. Dan, what did you make of our main event and the finish? Um, I'll do the same as Rory and break it down into two bits. So the match, I hated it. Really hated it. Oh, wow. It. I 
Uh, maybe it's because I am really sour on Austin right now, but I really have not been impressed with his pay-per-view attitude. I really hated what he did to Rikishi last month, and this felt like he wanted to do exactly the same thing to Triple H as he did with Rikishi, but because Triple H is a little bit more clout, a little bit more, you know, bank in, in the backstage politically, you know, kind of way, he couldn't do that. So he tried to make... Like, I don't remember Triple H getting offense in this match. Like, all of the spots that happened that were quite, quite big were done to Triple H. So, but it wasn't done in a, you know... The intensity wasn't there. It just felt like Austin was having a, you know, you know, having a drink on the steps. You know, he looks, he takes a break during the match to look at his cooler and going, "Oh no, hang on, I need to get a beer out of that first before I hit him over the head with it." It just did not feel the same level of like Austin should be willing to kill this man in the match, and in the match itself, he just didn't have that same intensity and attitude um, for for what Triple H did to him. And Triple H didn't deserve what I felt like he got in this match either, which was this should have been a, a, a first chapter in a long feud between one of the top faces in the company and the biggest heel in the company, which, Chris, you've already said, was the biggest dream match the WF put, could put on right now. And this did not feel like a dream match at all. This felt like just a match to get to the angle. So, yeah, I... Did not enjoy this match at all. There were a couple of decent spots, obviously, but the attitude was wrong. Like the whole feeling of the match itself was wrong. Um, and then we get to the finish. Um, Roy hasn't gone through the logistical, logistical points of view, so I'll just read off a couple quickly. How the hell did no one notice that Austin had quickly run away and started up and managed to get a big giant forklift into position? How did Triple H not get out of the car when the door was open? Why, what happened to Chris Benoit? What happened to the Radicals? Did they just get escorted away? Particularly the Benoit, because he was all alone. Didn't he notice anything about Austin getting into position? Uh, and yeah, this is ruined completely by the fact that Triple H is back six days later. No, eight days later, my mistake. With barely a scratch on him compared to what happened last year when Austin is run over by a car. And I remember praising that angle to the hilt because of what Austin went away from him. You know, he is out of action for 10 months and we set up this big long angle and what we can do with it. If Triple H wanted some time out the ring to come back for the Rumble and WrestleMania season, I probably would be a bit more forgiving of this angle, but he isn't because he, he has to be in the TV television program because he's the game. Um, and all of the great work he did on the microphone in November leading up to this match, I felt was completely undone by this. Uh, I did not enjoy any of this match or Nyota, but I just wanted to say that we as kind of smart 20-something um, wrestling fans probably aren't the audience for this. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the audience don't know, Rory. <laughs> um, but we aren't the audience for some of this I think the audience for this is the casual water cooler, kids in the playground and they probably would have loved this so there would have been a massive talking point and sometimes you have to play for your main demographic and as much as we hate it I can kind of understand why they did it well then um, 
<laughs> I don't really feel like following that with my honest opinions, which are vastly different. Um, so on the match, firstly, I quite enjoyed it. I, I perfectly agree that it didn't really feel befitting of, of kind of like the intensity of the feud. But Austin's been gone a year and like Rikishi didn't really feel like his first pay-per-view match back because he just kind of took him apart. But the first like 20 odd minutes of this, um, I I kind of agree with you, Rory, in that like this format of main event was feeling a tad stale a year ago. It's kind of evolved and it's not that anymore. Maybe this did feel like a greatest hits record, but it's one of my favorite greatest hits records. So like I was kind of on board with it. Um, yeah, I, I don't necessarily think it was befitting of um, the story and the intensity was definitely lacking. But like I mentioned earlier, good and entertaining doesn't necessarily have to be the same thing. And I, I think this match suffered from maybe the the creative and whoever's responsible for coming up with the creative Um We'll let that one hang. Uh, potentially, yeah, meant that this match suffered a bit more um, in terms of it didn't match the tone of the story and also the tone of the angle that was going to follow. But while it was happening, as an isolated 22-minute match, I really enjoyed it. And then we heard backstage and... Uh, Again, it's one of the most like ridiculous angles I've ever seen, made all the more ridiculous eight days later when Triple H, as we'll talk about later, returns. Um, but I can't deny that when Survivor Series went off the air, which was about 15 seconds after the car hit the ground, I was like, smiling and stunned like and i i'm not saying it was good but i'm saying it was very entertaining it was absolutely absurd but i didn't like hate it in the moment i hate everything around it i hate like the fact that on my pro wrestling show i just seen like a murder and then <laughs> and then i just haven't because like the next day they're like oh he's in hospital and then a week later he's back and then He's just back now. That's it. It, it never really happened. Like, it's like it never happened. It's like Austin just stunned him and left him there. Um, but in the moment, I thought this was certainly unique, certainly original. It had some massive gaping holes in its logic and huge flaws. But I was entertained by this match, taken aback, but entertained by the the angle that sort of was in place of a finish and i think absurdity and egregiousness of the finish aside this match is kind of like a very very good chapter one in what i expect is a feud between these two that will span three or four pay-per-views potentially even to wrestlemania next year um before we see that rivalry culminate and we have that one sort of blow-off match that caps the whole feud off, by which point I would hope the intensity is there. But for me, I have to say I really enjoyed this. 
I'm aware that's not your popular opinion. <laughs> now who's taken aback? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, with that match in the books, it's time for our overall thoughts on the show and a score rating out of 10. Uh, Dan, I'll come to you first. Hmm, probably talking it through, I've succumbed to the negativity a little bit, so I'm going to downgrade what I was going to go originally. I'm going to go for four. Um, yeah, just like the, even the stuff that was good, which was Rocky Rikishi and arguably the second Survivor Series matches, like only one of these is something I will go back and watch again. And then you add in the negativity surrounding the main event, Taker, just generally, um, the sloppiness and maybe the, the slide of Jericho, and just generally the feeling that we are going back, backwards. Like, part of me feels like why the reasons why WF has been so good this year is it's been fresh. Like, Angle, Benoit, Jericho, all these Triple H elevation, all of these new characters coming on board. But now with Taker in his, you know, this is his, this is his yard and putting people back in place, and Austin just waltzing in and just kind of trashing everyone in his wake. Just, I don't know, it rubbed me up on the wrong way a little bit this month, and I think this carried over into the pay-per-view. So I'm going to give it a 4 out of 10. Rory, over to you. Yeah, I'm lowering my original mark that I had, it, had in mind too, and I'm down at a 3.5, so not much above King of the Ring in the end, and not good enough. I talked before we started reviewing this pay-per-view that there were moments of light and some clarity that I could see through the fog, but I'm not so sure we can really confirm those yet. Uh, I used the word promising a lot in the last hour and a half because it remains to be seen what is really going to happen with the likes of Trish or Molly or Lita or Jeff Hardy. This could be the beginning of quite the bright future for them but we don't know that yet all we have got to talk about here at the end of november 2000 is a pay-per-view which was dominated by familiar names and other than the rock i have no issue mentioning again that stellar performance to do his best to flog the proverbial dead horse the big names didn't bring it in the case of one of them they brought what he know he brings and that's horror and torment and rants but <laughs> we all know that that is far from a plus point certainly not for our poor old listeners and it's another black mark i'm afraid on the wwf's a pay-per-views this year it's it's baffling to me that when the pressure has been off slightly they brought it and brought it in a big way but when they know that the buy rates are going to be up and it's really going to be about all the big guns, they're misfiring left and right. Not quite left, right and centre. They can shoot straight, but left and right at least. And as hot as the Federation have been this year, and that the good has far outweighed the bad, that does not mean we should ignore the bad when it comes along not that this is an outright terrible show that 
Survivor Series matches were what they were. They were fine. A couple of good individual performances, like I've said, but it really didn't hang together. And I cannot forgive that finish, despite your sterling defense there, Mr. White. So another A-grade pay-per-view gets a D-grade, I'm afraid. Three and a half out of ten. Yeah, comfortably in the bottom half of WWF pay-per-views for the year. I don't think it would be in my bottom two or three, maybe. Um, I've, I'm sorry, I like the main event. <laughs> I, I, I think generally there was something lacking on the show. Maybe it's the fact that there was no like incredible like blowy tag match and. I don't know. Without your right to highlight the rock, and with the exception of him, I wouldn't say anyone really nailed it. Um, I think a lot of it can be blamed on the general creative turnover that we seem to be going through at the moment in the WWF. And I think there's obviously quite a big creative gap between what we saw at No Mercy and then what happened at Survivor Series. Like, I mean, what, four weeks ago, if that, Benoit was facing Triple H in quite an intense feud. Um, and now he's like his little lackey as the leader of the Radicals. After feuding with him at no, no Mercy, Austin Rikishi had a no contest last month. I know they had the cage match on TV, but I feel like that kind of got swept under the rug a little bit. And the new focus was Triple H, who last month was a bit of a baby face. Angle kind of left stranded without a proper program as WWF champion on a fo- time where there's no focus on the belt. I don't think that helped that match. And I don't think Rikishi's casting in that role and certain aspects of the character and story particularly help the Rock Rikishi match as much as Rock tried. So I think a lot of the issues from this sort of stem from the creative. But that being said, I don't think a great deal of in-ring performers really smashed out the park tonight. Um, I've come down at five. Um, maybe that's a tad high, but that's my score. Five out of ten for Survivor Series. So, last couple of discussion points to go over before we wrap up for the month. Firstly, I'd just like to put sort of that final stamp on the Kurt Angle Undertaker story that we saw play out Survivor Series. So, let us introduce to you Eric Angle. The night after Survivor Series, Kurt comes out to the ring, accompanied with his lookalike from the night before. Kurt gets on the mic, starts talking about how every year at Survivor Series we get something screwy go down, such as the Bret Hart incident in Montreal or Austin getting run down last year. Kurt also mentions that there's always a new champion crowned every year, but he avoided that screwjob curse and for once the good guy retained the title. Kurt then proceeds to introduce his older brother, Eric Angle, who he claims was actually under the ring as he was there to surprise him by hiding under the ring to come out and celebrate when Kurt retained the title. Kurt says it wasn't their fault that Taker pulled Eric out of the ring and gave him the last ride, and Angle says that he retained the title and promises to remain champion for a long, long time. Uh, Undertaker comes out, he makes his way to the ring, Angle sacrifices Eric by shoving him in Taker's way, Taker takes him out of a chokeslam, Taker hammers away on Kurt, beats him up all the way to the ramp, up the ramp to the stage and choke slams him off the stage through the te- through a table below. And for what it's worth, we don't see nor hear from Eric Angle again the rest of the month. Can we not just make Kurt look like not a joke? 
as WWF champion at the hands of the Undertaker just one time, Rory. It would be very nice, wouldn't it, Chris? But I feel like we're tilting at the proverbial windmills on this one. As long as the Undertaker is living and breathing, then it's not going to happen, is it? After all, Chris, come on. This is his yard. Well, he tells us often enough. Yeah, it's just horrible. Angle doesn't need to be made a joke of because, well, he's the world fucking champion. I don't care if he's a heel. Take the guy seriously. Now, leave the comedy stuff. If you want any laughter in Kurt Angle's direction, laugh with him because the man is a scream and he's genuinely hilarious and he's the best thing going today to steal a phrase from somewhere else. But really, I again, for the sake of my throat and our listeners, just, just, you, you, you're, you're teasing me here, Chris, aren't you? Yeah. It's this red rag to a bull stuff here, and I'm trying not to look at it. Uh, Dan, what did you make of how this kind of played out and, and finished the sort of one-on-one rivalry between Kurt and Taker? Obviously, Taker's involved in the title picture moving forward, but kind of like this finish sort of played out on TV here. I echo what Rory says. This man was a serious threat to Triple H and The Rock three months ago. And then bloody Dead Man Inc. comes along and he's uh, back to being February sort of Kurt Angle. And it's just such a regressive move. Like, look, you, you already heard me laughing when he mentioned that, you know, Angle was there to surprise him with, with a surprise celebration. We don't need to have him being made fun of to be exposed. We just need to have him telling jokes and having him and Edge and Christian play in the kazoo all, all month. <laughs> That's all we need. Just give us a hilarious yet serious WWF champion who you can be, who can be a credible threat for Austin or Rock or Benoit or Jericho or whoever it is when the time comes for him to lose it. Him being made a buffoon does nothing to the person who beats him. Speaking of buffoonery, um, we follow up with the fate of Triple H following the incident at the end of Survivor Series. So on the 20th of November edition of Raw, the night after Survivor Series, Stephanie tells us it's a miracle that Hunter survived the assault last night. Triple H has asked her to come to Raw to speak on his behalf, says that Triple H suffered multiple contusions, concussions and mental trauma. She wants to apologise to Austin and move on from their feud, which doesn't go too well. As shortly later, Austin tells Steph he's so sorry to hear that Hunter is in the hospital instead of the morgue. Austin promises their rivalry is not over by a long shot. That week on SmackDown... Can you have multiple concussions? I guess just one after another, after another, after another. (laughs) But it's just one big incident. I don't know. I guess it depends where your brains are. (laughs) so that week on Smackdown we hear from Michael Cole he tells us Triple H has been released from hospital so it's like four days after he'll be at home spending Thanksgiving with his wife and there are rumours that Triple H is expected to be back on Raw this coming Monday just eight days after Survivor Series so we get to that episode of Raw the final Raw of the month our main event sees Kurt Angle defending his WWF title against Stone Cold Steve Austin Commissioner Foley had told us at the top of the show that Hunter and Steph were expected to be there. But we were like, what, an hour 45 into the show at this point, And we hadn't seen them so far. Stephanie comes down to ringside during the match between Austin and Angle, distracting Austin before Angle, before he turns and hits Angle with the stunner, looks to be about to win the title 
into the cover when suddenly a freely moving Triple H hits the ring and breaks up the count for the DQ. Hunter and Austin exchange shots until Triple H drops Austin with a right hand, then tees off on him on the mat before choking him with his boot. Angle leaves the ring and watches from the ramp, just pleased to have retained his title. Stephanie slides a chair in the ring. Triple H hits a neckbreaker onto the chair. Hunter knocks down the ref and tears off his shirt. We see he's got no visible cuts, no bandages, no scarring at all. Triple H and Stephanie stand over the fallen Austin eight days after that incident at Survivor Series as the show goes off the air. Dan, it's not quite as quick a recovery as the giant falling off the roof at Halloween Havoc 95, but it isn't, it isn't, it's not too far behind, really. Eight days? Eight days. Must have been, that's, you must have watched X-Men recently and, and got visions of Wolverine with his healing ability and his adamantium <laughs> skeleton to, to survive that fall so quickly. Just awful. I, I really can't stand this, this illogical. Like, short again, WCW proved with Sting that if you build up something of anticipation, that you can build to something great. Just, you don't need to have Triple H come back for eight days to make people want to see Triple H and Austin go at it. You just have him go away. You can have Austin, you know, you can have him, have somebody else in the, in the six-man match next month. Have that, you know, have Austin be just there to win the title and then Triple H costs him a hell in the cell for all I care. Just don't make it so quick for him to return. It just makes a mockery of the angle. It makes a mockery of what they were trying to accomplish. And mock- the mockery of anybody who's in- out injured for like a month or two because of a legitimate injury. Because, oh, well, Triple H came back after eight days after being dropped from 50 feet in a car. Ludicrous. Rory, um, I feel like my praise or, or defense of the uh, finish at Survivor Series is kind of in the bin now after this. Oh, we're getting somewhere. I mean, very quickly on this, because it all doesn't ever speak for itself or what. I mean, back in the territory days, a chair shot to the arm would put you out of action for six months and you would have letters being sent to your home address, or very possibly your mother's home address in Black Border. Now you can be dropped 50 feet from a car head first suffer multiple concussions worst of all of course as we just discussed and you can come back in with nary a scratch on you eight days later and reinsert your way into the title picture i repeat from earlier i even practically ran the wwf there we go and finally for the month i'd like to talk about the number one contendership for the wwf title so the last SmackDown opens with footage of Commissioner Foley talking to Rikishi. He promises him a shot at the WWF Championship. Not really sure what he's done uh, to earn it, but there we go. However, we see another clip from earlier that day, and Foley's talking to Triple H, and he also grants him a title shot. We then see further footage of Foley promising Undertaker a title shot, then the same for The Rock. Then again, for Stone Cold Steve Austin. So by the time the show starts, five different people have been promised title shots, and we were looking for some clarification during the show. 
Mick does make his way to the ring and he gets some time on the mic. Foley says that after all the chaos recently, his eyes are open wider to some of the things that he should have seen. Foley says that Kurt is a conniving, double-talking, snivelling liar, but he's right about the WWF. We've seen a man drop 40 feet off a forklift and the WWF champion choke them off the stage. Foley mentions the number one contenders match that happened that week on Raw and that it ended in disqualification. Foley said he's decided to sew all the screw jobs by naming five number one contenders. First brings the rock to the ring. Rock arrives and Foley tells him and they talk Rock arrives and they talk about how three people ran in during his match on Monday. Rock takes the mic, starts off with his usual catchphrases and then says that he was the number one contender when he woke up this morning so he should be the number one contender when he goes to sleep. Brom brings up how Foley named four other guys number one contender but it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that The Rock will be getting his title shot at Armageddon. Foley mentions there's another person who's cheated out of the title and brings out The Undertaker. Taker says he doesn't have any idea what Foley's doing but as long as it involves him getting a shot at Angle he's down with it. Foley brings out Austin Austin asks Foley to bottom line his whole thing, so Foley decides to bring out Triple H and Rikisi, both of whom who stand on the stage. Foley says that it's all five men have had their lives intertwined for a long time, and he's sick of it, so he's figured out a way to have a WWF Championship match to end this whole damn thing. Foley announces that all five will challenge Angle for the title at Armageddon in the Hell in a Cell. Rory, a six-man Hell in a Cell for the WWF Championship. We've had a few of these matches... That's one hell of an announcement and actually something to look forward to next month coming out of all the convoluted, messy booking. Yeah. Until I see the thing, I'm okay. As is ever the case. Until I see the thing, I'm okay with this. It's not the most wide awake booking in the world. It's a little lazy, perhaps, but they did have Foley explain it by saying one way or the other. The six of these guys have lived their lives vicariously through one another over the last year or so. So that was a good attempt at an explanation, and I do think it held. It's a December pay-per-view. Not expecting a mega buy rate. People will be doing other things in December rather than watching pro wrestling, other than us, of course. So a six-man Hell in a Cell match where everybody's going to get a chance to see all their favourites, and maybe some of their non-favourites, in a big match at the end. It does raise quite the alarm bell that the previous two hours in the pay-per-view are going to be spread rather thin, talent-wise. But for something to do in your final pay-per-view of the year, where I'm not envisioning Touchwood a title change, I think they're probably going to have Angle escape with the belts one way or the other. If one of these guys is going to become the WWF champion, they're going to want to do it in a slightly more emphatic way than this. And I would imagine in a one-on-one match, but for what it is, gets all these guys on the card. And regardless of some of my personal leanings towards or away, some of them, I'm okay with it. December pay-per-view. If there's ever such a good time to have this sort of match, it's probably then. Dan, what did you make of the announcement of the six-man Hell in a Cell? Mm, probably more... This is like when, like, if I equate it to a boxing analogy, so bear with me. 
if you had no, number one and number two fighters going at it, and you're like, oh my god, they're finally going to do it, it's going to be amazing, it's a six-man hell in cell, it's going to be great. And then there's an old adage in boxing called styles make fights. And then you realize that, oh, actually, this is actually just going to be a train wreck. So maybe because it's the bad mood I'm in, but I just think this is really tight hell in a cell. It's a bit of a tight squeeze as it is with two men. How on earth are we going to make this work with six, with with limited camera shots and stuff like that? I think this is a match for, again, the mass audience rather than purists like, like maybe us we are. I think it's going to be a case of where your buy rate's going to probably going to go up. It's one of those things where the the chats in and schools and and workplaces and chat rooms are going to be like firing on all cylinders. But when it comes to the match itself. I don't have a lot of hopes, personally. I, I just think it's going to be too crowded. And maybe this is just me being cynical and I need to take kind of... Like, I, what, I remember uh, maybe two and a half years ago and I was thinking, God, that Inferno match between Undertaker and Kane is going to be crap. And I watched it and I loved it. So maybe they will surprise me and I hope they do. But right now, I'm quite pessimistic. Yeah, it could end up being one of those shows, maybe like a Royal Rumble. Not that I'm expecting it to go like an hour, like a Rumble match would. Where, but you've got like a 40-minute main event in there, maybe, and then the rest of the card. Maybe you have less than the normal sort of eight matches. Maybe you've only got five or six on there, just to cope with the fact that pretty much all the main eventers are out of the equation. But I still think they've got enough to have a good undercard, probably they're at the best point that they could potentially have a six-way main event match in the last few years, considering some of the depth they've got on the roster, especially if people like Jericho and if obviously his rivalries continue with Kane following Survivor Series, if you'd expect or hope that he would have a better show in this time round. And obviously you've got the tag division, um, things like that. Uh, hopefully there'll be enough. It's one of those matches that I think it could be a complete mess or it could be great. And I don't think there's much middle ground there. I don't think it's just going to be all right. Um, it's either going to work and be great or be something that's uh, best forgotten and maybe will be um, a detriment to the, uh, so far the pretty stellar history of, um, Hell in a Cell matches across the last three years or so, and maybe this one might be a bit of a dud. Who knows? But I think um, I'm cautiously optimistic as we head into December and towards Armageddon. And that will do it for our WWF November 2000 coverage. Rory, thank you so much for being on the show and all your excellent contributions as always. My pleasure, Chris. I feel like I've learned a lot today in the last two and a half hours. <laughs> Rory, uh, would you like to go through a few plugs and the like? Absolutely, I would, yes. So, in addition to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast, you can hear me on Place to Be Nation. I've got two shows going on there on the Place to Be Nation Wrestling Network. A monthly show by the name of The Special Relations, where myself, Ben Locke and Callum McDougall just basically talk about wrestling can be a bit of modern stuff, a bit of retro. Sometimes it's going to be a live watch. The most recent show we did 
we live watch NXT Revolution. Uh, speaking of Stella, the Sami Zayn Neville main event, that one still hits the spot. Uh, we're also recording a Christmas special where we will be watching SummerSlam 89, rather typically, coming up soon. And also on my show, Senior Video, also drops there every month, where I pick a random home video classics from the WWE Network and the review it. Roddy, Roddy Roddy Piper's Greatest Hits, easy for me to say, is our current offering, so do check that one out. If you want to get in touch with me, definitely the best place to do that is the Wrestling 20 Years Ago Twitter account at Wrestling20YRS. Whether your thoughts echo mine or anybody else's on the main event of Survivor Series 2000, for example, we'd love to hear from you. And anybody who would like to join us as a future contributor in 2001 and beyond, do please get in touch and we will do everything we can to get you on the shows as soon as possible. As always, thanks very much for listening to this. And also, I was actually going to do this in timeline. It might have been... Again, talk about black marks. I've been slightly less of a black mark over it. But I'd also like to thank Dan Welling for reminding me of the kazoos this month. Because now I've got in my head, Chris Benoit is here and is very mad. (laughs) Chris Benoit is here and he's very angry. But I really should have said that about five minutes ago. (laughs) And uh, massive thanks to Dan Welling for jumping back on the WWF side of things. Great analysis. And it's always a blast doing shows with you, Dan. Cheers, Chris. That's much appreciated. And it's always a blast doing shows with you as well, too, guys. So much so that I think that we have more shows than we clearly do together. As a <laughs> um, so, yeah. And I apologize to all you loyal American listeners. I do not hate you swine at all. <laughs> there we go. And, Thank uh, you so much for listening, guys. It's much appreciated. It is very much appreciated. I have been your host, Chris White. Thank you very much for listening to the show, as we've all said. And until next time, goodbye.